My guest today is Rabbi Rachmiel Travitz, a lawyer by training. His true passion is with Andalusian Judaism in the uh, tradition of Rambam or Maimonides and his uh, school of thought, broadly and deeply, I guess. Um, and he's recently returned to academia to research and write further on the matter, I understand? Um, well, that's correct. I mean, I would like to go into academia and therefore um, I'm working towards that. Uh, just a little slight um, uh, Amendment? Amendment, exactly, <laughs> to, to the description is that um, it's not so much about Rambam as it is about the tradition that he happens, happens to be the best representative of. Um, it, is inter- it is important not to um, uh, overstress the importance of any one figure uh, because talking of... Uh, uh, you then start going down the dangerous uh, track of like leaders and leadership and a sort of vertical sort of society, which these very thinkers themselves, it would be completely repugnant to them. So we're not talking about um, um, following Rambam like a chassid follows a Rebbe. We're talking about a tra- following a tradition uh, of Torah that he represented. Mm-hmm. So it's not about Rambam. I mean, incidentally, by the same... Um, um, you, you know, there are people who go around and call themselves Goonists or other things like that um, because they say they follow the Goonim. Uh, the truth is, I follow the Goonim too, as did Maimonides, as did everyone, of, of the Andalusian tradition, which we, which we will discuss. But um, um, we don't follow people, we follow a tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we are people of the book, we follow the book. We don't follow people. So there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot to unpack just in that already. Um, but let me start by saying it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. And I, I wanted to, for you, I, maybe maybe a good a good way to start is like biographically. I guess I guess um, I, I don't know. I think we are raised in like relatively similar circles. Uh, well, yes. But um, the story would be long and complicated. Long and, and complicated? Long and complicated. Do you and want to pick a specific... So I'll, yeah, no, I'll, I'll start from a certain point. Okay. Um, we can go from there. So when I was... Um, I was uh, studying Dayanut uh, about now, coming on 10 years ago, a little bit less. So just to, just to clarify, Dayanut is like... The, so after one gets smicha and is ordained as a rabbi, Dayanut is like, I guess, postgraduate rabbinic studies, something like that? Uh, it's, it's specific training to become a judge. I mean, um, it, like, for example, in Europe, in the, in, the, in the civil law countries, not like Australia, obviously, but in the civil law countries, um, someone trains to be a judge. Mm-hmm. Specifically, you go to a school to learn to be a judge, um, and it's uh, separate from uh, uh, being a... Uh, uh, a rabbi, obviously. You, the focus is, of course, on the laws of um, uh, that relate to marriage and divorce, um, and the laws that relate to monetary disputes, civil disputes, mm-hmm. and technically criminal, um, but um, they're a little bit less relevant in a modern day and age. Fair. What are the, what are these civil countries you're talking about? Oh, civil law countries are countries which don't follow the common law system. They'll tend to have trained judges um, much more. Yeah, France, continental Europe, um, Russia, but pretty much everywhere in the world besides for the countries that have adopted the English law system. Okay. So it's easier to talk of um, the handful of common law countries (laughs) than it is to talk about the majority of civil law countries. Right. I saw, I saw a, uh, this is way off topic, but I saw a a map once of like, 
the red countries are countries that like the British have at some point colonized or invaded and the white countries are countries they haven't and there are like six white countries something like that right right that, that map is by the way uh, grossly inaccurate in many ways but um um but uh, that's of course a, a totally separate topic um uh, but you're studying you're studying Dianet. yeah i was studying Dianet. about and, 10 years um, ago it was the slow Basically, there are things that you study, I think we've all probably experienced this within the uh, black hat orthodox world, or in general within the orthodox world, there are things that bother you, um, and they have to bother you, um, mm -hmm. just because they, they, they seem to be quite incoherent. Well, without, um, without any lush and horror, God forbid, like, do, you want to, do you want to talk about an idea? or We'll, we'll, we'll get to that, we'll get okay. to that. There are certain ideas that are, are, are pretty incoherent, and, and, and you know what, sometimes you find an answer and it's compelling or it's not. Or, but more often than not, you shove it to the back of your mind and, and uh, you know, whatever. It's just a little thing. But eventually, for me, the, you know, there, was a, there was a straw that broke the camel's back. And um, from that point, um, I started on a journey of trying to find what the correct uh, thing was. And basically, you come to this realization that there's something wrong with the system. It's not a particular idea or a particular uh, set of ideas. It's, it's, it's a system that, that is intrinsically, um, because of its intrinsic incoherence, well, there are those who would, you know, you know, throw their arms up in the air and just leave Judaism and the plenty who did. Um, some of our best and brightest, um, in fact, did so. And there are examples I can think of, even right now at the top of my head, for example, the Nobel Prize winning um, uh, a physicist, um, uh, Feynman, he 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 went to a religious school. He was brought up in a, the Orthodox uh, Yeshiva school system, uh, I believe, in New York. Um, um, and not only did he leave that behind to become a physicist, he used to have these interesting discussions with uh, uh, you know young Bocherim who would come over to him and 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 insist to this Nobel Prize-winning physicist that electricity is fire, and you know he would mm. laugh in their faces and he would make fun of them. Um, so there, I mean, it's it's the sort of incoherence would um, you know cause a lot of people to lose all interest. But those of us who are passionate and loyal to Judaism knows that there's something else out there, something better out there, and um, it, and it was the search and finding that and slowly arriving to certain conclusions. Um, you 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 came across a coherent system, a coherent tradition, something where it makes sense. Um, and I know that this sounds like big abstract concepts, but I can give very clear examples. Sure. So one of the clearest examples is, um, you will hear, for example, orthodoxy say, um, and I'm say, talking about, you know, orthodoxy, large orthodoxy, the movement invented by Ashkenazim in Eastern Europe, um, um, as a reaction to, um, to the Haskalah. Um, orthodoxy will claim that it is better than reform um, because they, we, we accept the authority of the Talmud, quote unquote. And this is the type of argument you'll see in a lot of uh, books that, that make this, this claim. So they're saying, we follow Talmud. We follow rabbinic tradition. Mm -hmm. Then you point to a specific, very clear Talmud, Talmudic law. And they'll say, oh, we don't paskin like the Gemara. Mm. Or we don't paskin like that Gemara. Or any other million excuses to justify why they do uh, whatever it is that they do. Um, furthermore, they have this term that they tend to mis misuse. Um, and they call it Mesoira. And the, the reason why they misuse this term is because the word Mesoira, to surrender or to pass something down, 
I suppose, um, implies that it has been passed down, um, which means that if it has been passed down, it's verifiable. If there's a historic record, I should be able to go back and check it up. So if you claim that something's been passed down and it's being passed, pa uh, uh, passed down authentically and it's an authentic tradition, then what you are claiming is part of this tradition, I should be able to see 50 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and so on, um, in one form or another. But when you consistently hold up examples to this test and it fails, um, you see that what they really mean by the word Basoda, and if you listen carefully, I think um, you could tell that this is exactly what they mean, is whatever we do is Masoira. Because mm. we do it, we it read it Masoira. backwards. Exactly, exactly. We start with what we do, and then we read it backwards right, right. into the legal tradition. Uh, exactly, exactly. So, for example, um, you find another example of this in Hasidic thought. So, you could either choose to read the view of um, of uh, of the author of Tanya uh, as saying that because a person does no sins at all, therefore he's a Sadiq, or because he's a Sadiq, he does no sins. The difference is very, is, is blatant and it's stark. Um, someone, only someone, if you take it the first way, you'll see someone who never does any sin, okay, he's a righteous person. Um, now, we can debate over his definition of what a Sadiq is and isn't, and whether it's traditional or in line with, with original sources, but it's not really relevant for our points, because mm. the next thing that happens is, is that because the Sadiq doesn't do any sins, when you see someone who is righteous doing something wrong, then suddenly it becomes okay. It doesn't matter how minute or how small it is, you it has to, be justified, right. has to be justified in one way or another. Um, it's unquestionably the case, I mean, it's not even a question of debate. We know that, for example, um, especially in, in, in the early early 90s the rebel would um, go and pray uh, go and pray at his uh, grand at his at his uh, father-in-law's grave um, and then um, he'd come back when it was already dark and he'd pray mincha. now clear it's not even debatable about what's going on there he mm. missed the time and now he's praying mincha. rather he shouldn't be doing that should be praying arvid twice or or, 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 in fact, the fact that he missed it at all. Now, that's, that should be the greatest of our in, in, in infringements. Um, so um, it's not a, a large infringement by any guess, but by, by the very standard that they hold up. Um, you can't falsify that he's a Sadiq because, because he's a Sadiq, he does no sins. Whereas if it were the other way around, because he does no sins, he's a Sadiq, that would tend to jive with what we have traditionally always viewed as as doing good deeds and not doing evil deeds that if you do the good things you are good and if you don't do the bad things you are bad not the other way around where it's determined you are good therefore everything you do is good or you are bad and therefore everything you do is bad okay hang on so there's there's a couple of things here one is i feel like just just from from the i i feel like there's there's a there's what the, there's a more profitable specific conversation to be had about the the legal particulars, which I think we'll get to. But but just on the subject of like what Tanya says, my understanding is that uh, someone who does no sins gets the rank of Bainani, like middle person, and Sadiq is like a much higher rank that also involves like a whole um, a whole sort of inner inner refinement. Right. Well, of course, of course. I, I, but um, um, the, the, the the distinction is that a Bainani is someone who who doesn't do any sins, but he doesn't doesn't do it. Because he chooses not to do it, because he has the potential to do it, and he just doesn't. He, he, just, fight, he, fights, he fights his inner, his inner but the, the, the Sadiq apparently has no has no yisahara and has no desire whatsoever uh, to sin. So the question is, when 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 someone who is called a Sadiq by whatever metric and therefore does do something that's against Shulchan Aruch, mm. suddenly it's not against Shulchan Aruch. It's well, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting, like just to 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 play with like 
the Tanya's definition here for a bit because the, the, like it opens the the, the Balatanya specifically is like look I know that this isn't how we how we um, we normally talk about things right because it's on the balance of a man's um, it's on the balance of a man's deeds whether he's righteous or not. Um, so if he has more righteous deeds than not, then he's he's a righteous man. That, that, that's in fact the definition in the law. That's the legally yeah. defined so that's what definition. He says. He that's says the law. I that's mean, the law. What he, but he says what we that's only as far as law is concerned. But we're concerned. No, with like no. A he goes. He goes. Goes further than that. And this is part of the problem. He mm. calls the definition in the law the borrowed term. And okay. so therefore, the way that he then goes on to explain what a tzaddik really is and a rasha really is and a benoni mm. really is is what they are. That mm. is the Jewish definition, right? So uh, a rabbi can come up a few hundred years ago and come up with the definition mm. and then call every previous definition, including the legal definition that is codified as such in, in Maimonides code and elsewhere, mm. um, is now suddenly a borrowed term, Shem HaMushal. Shem HaMushal. Yeah. Mushal, like, like mashal, like parable? Mushal, it's with an aleph between the shin and like, the lamed. So it's like with an aleph. A borrowed term. Ma- like okay. she'ela is to borrow. Uh, okay, so okay, fine. So then, so then, what what the the upshot of all of this, as far as I can tell, is that is that you get a, a system where, rather than, um, rather than looking to the law and attempting to reason out how to act, we we uh, fall back on watching people who are understood to be righteous and and modeling their deeds well no i was just bringing this as an example um and i will be wary of bringing in the law yet well, mm. there's been plenty to speak about there um um, um but the, the point i'm trying to make is that we're talking about a system which claims that it is you know it dates back you know we go to moses at sinai mm-hmm. as it were um and yet throughout the entire exile period that is uh, post talent or indeed um, post-destruction, um, um, they uh, essentially um, create these changes. They have these changes that, that have come into, into Judaism that are, are not only really stated to be, um, uh, uh, they are stated to be the meaning. It is now the meaning. This is what a Sadiq is. Um, um, if, if are you we, talking about what the Hasidic writers are doing or what the Talmudic writers are doing? No, no, we'll get to We'll get to what Talmud, the Talmudic rabbis do, and what they don't do, and we'll we'll talk about their rights to do it, um, which is a separate point. But we're talking about post Talmud. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but if I'll give you another example um, in the legal sphere, for example, the Tzemach Tzedek, um, and I know I'm being very Chabad heavy with my you examples. You are. You're coming I, out I hard against Chabad. Here. I'm not. I'm not against. You're I'm not swinging. against. I'm simply um, showing examples of of, a, of an incoherence which can equally be displayed and is equally displayed by others. In fact, sometimes more so um, than in Chabad. Um, but um, an example from the Tzemach Tzedek is that he says that it is prohibited uh, from the Torah. Deoraita. It's a Deoraita prohibition hmm. to shave your beard. Uh, even with misparemke in some, so to use scissors basically, which really destroys the beard, but it's still not a razor. Oh, sorry, misparemke in tar. I misquoted that. So misparemke in tar. It's like a scissors, scissors which are like similar to, but are not a razor. Kein tar that are not a razor. It's not a razor. Yeah. Now, now there is definitely a valid, legitimate halachic debate about this, about whether it's prohibited rabbinically or whether it's prohibited or whether it's permitted. Sorry. No one throughout the entire history of um, of uh, Jewish, Jewish law, jurisprudence Jewish until ju- that point exactly had ever claimed that it was a Doraita. And how can some rabbi 
in, in, in Russia a few Does hundred it? years ago come up with it. And, and in fact, this is a personal, this brings up a personal story, in fact, because when I first um, I shortened my beard, so some uh, bocher who thought he was uh, smart um, um, came up to me and he said, Oh, don't you know what the Timochtetic says? It's Isidoraisa. And so the first thing I asked him is, Have you learnt that Timochtetic? And uh, um, as you can imagine, he said, No. Mm. And so then I said, You know, I have learnt it. But because you're a Chabad, you're not going to listen to the arguments about why I think that's, as a matter of halakha, is not correct. I think it goes against Maran Amechaber of um, the Rav Yosekaro in yeah. Shulchan Aruch. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're just not going to accept that. And that's fine. I don't expect you to. Hmm. He's your Rebbe. Why should you listen to me? I'm sure. However, you have a great question, right? Do I know better than the Because a question they ask, do I know better? And the answer is I don't. But the question was misdirected. The question is a great question to ask the Tzemach Tzedek. Does the Tzemach Tzedek know better than Tanakh, uh, Mishnah, uh, Midrash Halakha, Sifri, Sifra, uh, Tosefta? Um, uh, does it know better than Talmud, Bavli, Yerushalmi, the Geonim, uh, Rishonim, Achronim, everyone up to his age? And uh, no, he comes up with, 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 with an Isodor writer in Russia a few hundred years ago, and oh, that's the law, at least for Chabad, as it were. Hmm. And it has been, um, his view has been, has been influential, because you find other people like the Darche Teshuvah was the Rebbe of Munkach, uh, the, the uh, father of the, the, fame, the famed Minchas Elozer. He writes in the Darche Teshuvah Pirush to, um, to, to, to your day out, you should be choshesh for this, if, 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 uh, if a uh, shochet uh, shaves his beard, whether he's Yerash Shemayim, all these, these types of things you, you find. So it has, has had some influence, but the question is, um, when reforms like that come into Judaism, and reform is not an epithet, it's a descriptor. So um, <laughs> it is simply a descriptor. It's a describing <laughs> word. It is not an insult, as much as Orthodox use it against reform. Um, the question is, when right. you have reforms like this happen, and there are myriad examples of it, um, coming in. Um, the question just, is, just what one. makes you better than reform? In fact, reform at least, reform at least has the benefit of being honest because they say we don't follow halakha. Well, we don't find halakha to be binding. They might follow halakha, but they uh, on occasion, but they might find it to not be binding. Um, whereas orthodoxy says it is absolutely binding, but we'll just change it and do whatever we want with it. It's just, it's just plain dishonest. I, I mean, the, the examples of the incoherence, just, just, they, they, they continue and continue and continue. Um, and we could go all, all, all night long. Well, it seems at this rate that we very well might. But, but <laughs> let me, um, this just comes up because it's in, it's in uh, today's Chumash, the first Aliyah of Emor. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I guess, updating the podcast, but it's... Um, uh, I, I want to get this this idea out from Rashi. I'm going to read the English because that's what's coherent here to me. <laughs> um, Nor shall they shave the edge of their beard. So it's um it's about the Kainim, and so he's figuring out why they're they're restating this because they've already they've already talked about not shaving one's beard. Since it is stated in reference to all Israelites, and you shall not destroy. So that's like the the destruction of the beard. Um, one might think that if, that's in Leviticus 19.27 one might think that if one removed it with tweezers or with a plane one would be liable like to malkut, to lashes therefore it says nor shall they shave meaning that one is liable only for something called shaving geluach with destruction hishchatha involved in it that being a razor and so then it refers you to 
Makos 21a. So, so hashkatha, yeah, the, the term hashkatha has been legally defined by our sages as meaning ta'ar, as meaning a um, specifically with a razor. Um, right. So, okay. So then... Which is why prima facie, if you use dilapidatory cream, which the Talmud refers to as sum, that's okay. Although, like I said, that is a matter of, the, of debate, but it seems to be fairly clear. Um, so some opinions in the Talmud, face. as I understand you, say that you can't um, say that you can't use. Everyone, everyone sort of everyone agrees that an actual razor on the beard not okay. But some in the Talmud say an extra fence is you shouldn't use no, anything no, else. No, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say it comes what? from Talmud. The debate that I was talking about mm-hmm. is post-Talmudic. The prima facie Talmudic law is that you can basically get rid of it in any other way. Everything, anything but the razor. Anything but razor. Okay. And even then, it's only on the five points of the beard. Right. That's a separate point. Um, the point is, is that's the Talmudic law. That's basic. Um, but anyway, we, if we're going to get, we're going to lose the forest for the trees. Sure, sure. Um, we should really get, um, rather than discuss what Judaism isn't, we should probably discuss what, what um, uh, the Andalusian tradition is. But I'll just circle back to what we're starting. So this is basically the types of issues, and there are many others, that made me realize that there's something wrong with the system. Uh, not necessarily with the content, but with the system. Um, and uh, the issues with the system uh, are, number one, that it is not truly following a tradition. It, it does wind its way around all sorts of different ways. And, um, and we do find that orthodoxy does sometimes quite consciously change halakha. Hmm. Um, and there are, are significant examples of this, some of which would be uh, quite shocking and surprising. Um, um, one particular example stands out because it's 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 particularly exemplary of the of, of the problem. Um, so the, and it, and it's one of the earliest examples of it. The Baalei Tosafoth, that is the Tosafists um, who wrote their uh, Perush to the Talmud uh, on the prohibition. There's a, a decree, a rabbinic decree, against clapping, dancing, and playing musical instruments on Shabbat and Yom Tov. And the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Talmud. It's actually snake um, doesn't uh, uh, the reason it gives is because you might come to fix a a, a musical instrument. Metaken, I think is the phrase. Yes, metaken kli. Shema yetaken kli. Yeah, I think right. I think that that word. Um, I think uh, Avram Leder of Israel said that he he reckons that the metaken there means tune rather than mend, but but honored. Well, well, that would be. I would agree that that's subsumed under it. Anyway, the, the Tosafists, um, so basically, that's the decree. Um, people are, will, might argue, oh, well, how does it make sense that if I'm just clapping and dancing and there's no, no musical instruments around that I'm going to fix mm. the, the musical instrument? Well, uh, any, my any Andalusian would say, well, that's completely irrelevant. It's the law. Mm. For whatever reason, they decided to include it, and they may not have given their reason. They don't have to. Mm. They decided to ban that on, on Shabbat and Yom Tov across the board. That's the law. I mean, it doesn't really matter whether or not the law of the Parliament of Australia or the Parliament of Victoria makes sense. You're still bound to follow it. It's the law. You don't go and look up the, the parliamentary debates between politicians. I mean, you might do, and sometimes it's, 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 it's relevant to, to understand how they made the law the law, but, I mean, it doesn't change the fact. If the law says do not do X, Y, Z, you don't do it. Um, you, the fact that you, it doesn't make sense to you should not and never should. 
Do undermine the undermine the, the bindingness of the law, which brings me exactly to what the Tosafists do. They come along and they say that the reason is right. that the reason is that because of the reason you might come to fix a vessel, they come along and say, nowadays we are not experts hmm. in the manufacture of um, of uh, musical instruments. Hmm. And as a result of the fact that we're not uh, um, uh, experts, we're not going to try and fix it because we're not so precise with it such that we're going to forget and we're going to fix it and therefore it's permitted. Now, people think, oh, well, that's just to permit clapping and dancing. But no, it actually went further. They actually full-on permitted using musical instruments. And there is evidence of the fact that, um, that, um, that in fact, Jews in in middle, medieval Europe then started using musical instruments on, on Shabbat and Yom Tov. In fact, the Me'iri wrote a book in Magen Avot, which is a, a, a dispute, it was, it was a debate with the students of the Ramban, I believe, and they were using musical instruments, and he literally had to debate them to say that this is not okay. Whoa. So it wasn't just to allow... Cut, Red they, they, they allowed using musical instruments. And in fact, German jury, for a while, there were times when German jury would have organs in, in their synagogues. It wasn't unheard of to have organs in, in synagogues uh, hmm. on the basis of this uh, uh, Tosafot. I mean, I mean, you will have conservative Jews who do so, and they're being true to, to Ashkenazi history, the fact that Ashkenazi have permitted it. Um, when, when Orthodox attacks them, <laughs> ironically, they're being more true to, to it. But obviously, um, Maimonideans look at that Sort of that sort of remark from the Tosafists as 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 completely anathema to uh, to Jewish thought. You can't give a reason to the law, like who said you had to be an expert in, in in fixing in fixing it to then say, oh, that reason doesn't apply. So therefore, I thought the law I thought doesn't giving apply. reasons to the law and and arguing that those reasons no longer apply is like a mainstay of Jewish thought and goes all, back a lot further than that. It's a mainstay. It's a mainstay of Ashkenazi orthodoxy to do so. Hey, uh, it allows them to to play games with the law, as it were, to, to undermine. In the Andalusian tradition, you're, you're saying that doesn't happen. No, it simply does not happen. Safaris really? don't do that. Okay, so, so the reasons sometimes are relevant to the law when they're baked into the law. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if the law had said that the decree is not to play, not to clap, dance, or play musical instruments when you're in a place where people are experts in musical instruments, then sure. Right. But it doesn't say that. And, and furthermore, exactly as you sort of pointed out, you touched upon before, you don't need to be an expert to fix a musical instrument. I mean, what sort of expertise does it take to spread a skin over a drum? Right. Or to well, tune a guitar? This is actually the example that I was, I was given um, because I, 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 I inquired um, of a rabbi who was clapping in shawl about this exact issue. And he said, well, the reason we're not concerned is that... Um, we, you know, you don't really just pick up a piece of wood and spread a skin over it anymore. And, and that's fair enough. I mean, look, there's this... There's no, this, but that's the opposite of the, the Tosafot. So you say, we are not, we good, are not good experts. Enough to do it. We are not experts. But you don't need to be an expert. To, to make a drum? Absolutely not. To spread a skin over a drum. Oh, I don't know. In those days. What, what's those, it's like you take no, a piece on, of pie. You're talking about, you talk about a time and place where people are a lot better with their hands than we are. So I think it, you, you think if you had the raw materials so, so, right now, you could just put one together and you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't stress it? Okay, forget the example of a drum. Um, you think that, that musicians nowadays who come and play on their... Not everyone can play a musical instrument. That's right. fine. But the ones who can do know how to tune their guitars. They do know how to tune their pianos. They do know how to set them up to get them to work. And if they're not working, how to fix it, so how this, to troubleshoot this, it. It doesn't really okay, matter hang on, anyway. Hang on, hang on, hang on, relax, relax. Yes. <laughs> we've got, <laughs> just, we've got time, breathe. All good. We've got, 
I get that from I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to pull pull this this apart. I'm not trying to I'm I'm not trying to cut in, cut into the main thrust of your argument. But mm. I'm, I, it's interesting to me that um, that I it does seem to me like people aren't um, what don't have a like. There's a whole lot of there's a whole class of things that people intuitively think is simple that really aren't. Like, I mean, agriculture is like the big one, right? Everyone's like, how hard is it to put seeds in the ground and make them grow? But really, it's actually very difficult. Um, but you got something you're pulling up? Yeah, no, no, keep, keep talking, I'm listening. Uh, but I am going to pull up something, because we will have to touch on this. Look, the, the fact is, irrelevant or what the reason of the law are, the law is do not clap, do not dance, do not play with musical instruments. What you are, it doesn't matter that you can give a justification why you're not following. In, in essence, any lawyer would tell you what you're actually doing is you're saying that the law doesn't apply. You're therefore undermining the law. The fact is you're saying that you can clap and you can dance. And if you are being consistent, you can play musical instruments. All right. All right. Let's, 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 that, let's, let's talk about The end result shows Fine. that the law, that the Tomodoka law isn't being followed. Fine. Let's for whatever go. the nicest, nice reasons may be let's 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 fine let's come at this from a different angle do you so for you for you you reckon clapping dancing playing instruments shabbat all forbidden right absolutely that's your position okay what about during the rest of the week if that particular law was stated to apply on on yom tov and shabbat it's not particularly relevant to the rest of the week it's as simple as that in general do you do do you find those those activities to be permitted during the week there are certain other prohibitions that come into play with musical instruments, but um, not necessarily with dancing and clapping. But that's, like what? There is a prohibition on listening to live music uh, at all um, since the destruction of since of the, the destruction. This is the destruction of the temple. That is a, obviously a separate law, and it is a law. Do you um, do you do you abide by that one? Yeah, I try to. Do you avoid all music? Live music. It's says live music. to not listen to instruments. The implication is clearly live. The chief rabbi of Egypt at one point, Hamrafal uh, Aaron Ben Shimon, wrote a very interesting, a very long uh, response about um, whether uh, it is considered to be uh, playing a musical instrument to play a wind-up or an electric gramophone, and he uh, um, he came to the conclusion that it's not, and he does it through through a proper legal analysis there is no uh, emotion involved there's no uh sort of pill pull or or thumb thumb uh, moving or you know back and forth um it is a, a proper sustained legal analysis and but until the gramophone hang on so until the gramophone as i'm understanding your your position is that andalusian jews just like did not listen to music for like six, seven, no, 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 no. 1,500 years. Don't, don't, don't conflate. 1,300 years. Don't conflate a statement of what the law is with, with people's how it, fine. practice. You're saying pr- people who are properly observant Andalusian Jews just were not listening to no, no, music okay. for 1,200 so years? It's another point that I've noticed as well. This sort of um, fanaticism about keeping every law always is, is, is not really in line with the way Jewish people were throughout their history. Now, I'm not going to say you're not bound. You are bound and you have to keep everything. The question really comes down to how do you deal with an exile where you can't keep every law, even if you want to? Why can't you keep every law? I can start listing examples. Let's say, for example, the, the, it was prohibited for, for Jews in Europe, and it was, mm-hmm. to create their own parchments, to, to be parchment makers. It was a very respectable uh, profession. As a result... You mean you, forbidden, like, by the local Gentile authorities? Yeah, by the Gentile authorities. Right? You import them. 
well, yes, that would be ideal. But the, the result was they couldn't make their own parchments for Tefillin Mezuzot. They started, so you find that Ashkenazi uh, authorities start coming up with all sorts of reasons of why, why you can be lenient that a goy does it so long as a Jew has a little bit of involvement in the process or stands mm-hmm. uh, above him and, and says that it's sure. shema, even though he's not doing it. And as they start playing games with the Lord, sort of justify... Wait a second. Come on. That's, that's, that's straight Talmudic. The t- like, you, if you're taking a, you know, can, if one... Well, we haven't gotten to this yet because, you could, because, um, because we keep on discussing specific examples rather than the, s- fine, the system, quote-unquote. We could circle back around it, but I just want to make this point, which is that I, I think I heard this recently... The um, laws of carrying a, a knife to a circumcision on, on Shabbat, right? So you carry the knife. You can carry the knife, but it can't be covered. But if it's a time of danger, you can cover the knife. So like that's that's Talmudic. They're like adding an extra layer of Shabbos, uh, Shabbos desecration based on like the danger of the specific situation vis-a-vis right, Gentile right, authorities. Right, right, right. And but, the Talmud is rife with that sort of thing. But, so to argue true. that like the Ashkenazim. Are not you know are not being faithful to the spirit of the Talmud when they do the same I thing. Didn't I didn't say they're not faithful to the spirit of the Talmud. I said they're not faithful to tradition, which is something I'll get to shortly. Okay, sure. Um, same. But, my point stands. If you're saying they're not faithful to the tradition, they're not because they're doing the same thing that the Talmud is doing. The Talmud, the Talmud says that the the parchment needs to be made by a Jew. It's very clear on that. So now, because it can't be made by a Jew, they'll come up with reasons about how a Jew can Fine, sort of... But, but the mechan- but I'm not talking it. about this now, specific I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not blaming them. The only reason I brought up this example is because it's a way to I, deal I, with I'm an not exile. Saying you are, I'm not saying you are blaming them. I just want to like, you know, put a flag in here and say that even if, if in this particular law, the, the, the sages of the Talmud didn't argue back and forth as to whether it were... Um, as to whether it would, you know, you could you could bend it in these situations. Yeah. Of, of maybe they didn't have to deal with, you know, parchment restrictions under the Romans. But in the in with regards to the cases where they did have to deal with restrictions under the Romans, they used stuff that looks a lot like this to to maneuver and get around it. Right. So I'll I'll I will circle back to it. Okay. But that's fine. The, but the point over here is that they 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 came up with a way to deal with it, which was they employed a method called casuistry. Casuistry <laughs> to 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 justify to justify changes to the law. Now, um, a method called casuistry. Is this like a like a casuistry capi- was used as a method? Is this like a capital the, C like casuistry? Like it's an actual methodology that's like sure. It was it was a method time? used by it was it was specifically oh used by the Christians at the time, and to they used Roman uh, law. Uh, as a secular law system, but of course Roman law was very, very old and outdated at the time. So how did they apply it to changing circumstances through methods of casuistry? Right, because th- we've what got we the lower, pill. the lower, but, but, what we would call pill, the lower, lower, like lowercase c casuistry, like the way it's not used in, in, in standard, modern, modern right. yes, but casuistry capital C was a, it was, it was a method anyway. Right, okay. Um, but, but um, for Sephardim, and you'll see this very clearly, uh, even amongst non-Andalusian Sephardim, there is the trend towards codification. Uh, stating what the law is rather than trying to explain the law mm-hmm. and in explaining the law twisting it or changing it or modifying it they simply state the law as it is mm-hmm. it's very clear in the, the writings of my modern, if you look at his letters it sees that he states the law as one thing but then in the letters there's the discussion of doing something different people couldn't always keep the law but you don't change the law to fit the people right the law is the law and if you don't 
necessarily keep everything. You turned a blind eye. Yeah. And you tried to encourage them to keep as much as possible. This was very much the, um, uh, till, till very recently, this was the philosophy of many, many Safadi Khamim, including and especially uh, in Morocco, was, um, you know, to um, encourage as much observance as possible. And that which they don't do, turn a blind eye broadly. But you don't change the law to fit the people. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what the Tosafists tended to do. There's another example of it that comes to mind. Um, it seems very clear based on the Talmud that you're supposed to say the blessing before you wash your hands in the uh, because you say the, the blessing before every mitzvah mm-hmm. with two very specific exceptions which aren't particularly relevant for us um, and yet they, they say the beracha after they've already poured the water on the hand the Tosafot start their, their comments on this by saying but, but the people, our people they do it, the do other it way first around, right. and then they give reasons to justify it so rather than saying they're not keeping the law, this is the law, hmm. they nonetheless feel a need to justify it. Uh, whereas the author of Shulchan Aruch is very clear on this. He says, uh, he says that, uh, uh, right? Hmm. So he says the law is that you, that you say the blessing and you wash, right? Um, um, and uh, but nonetheless, they've accustomed to say the blessing after washing. By the way, I think the citation for this is Orachaim Kuf Chafchet one hundred and twenty-eight. Not bad. Um, but he, he, when you say the Orthodox Shulchan Aruch, who do you mean? I didn't, you mean I didn't say the Orthodox. You, your phrase is the Orthodox Shulchan Aruch. Did we I? Could play, yeah, we can play the tape back if you like, but I'll, I'll allow it as a slip. <laughs> the, and, when, you, when you look at, uh, the, the, uh, at the, the Shulchan Aruch accepted by Orthodoxy, shall there we say, you go. Clear, that they claim to accept. Claim. He clearly states the law as one thing, and then notes that people do something okay, different. Okay, let's, now, let's talk like this phenomenon, right? Just, so, just, so, so uh, just to conclude this particular point, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, the point is, is that um, clearly we have... Uh, two ways to deal with the phenomenon that in an exile uh, you cannot keep everything always and also simply the fact that you're human you cannot keep everything always Um, just one little uh, anecdote to sum this up is that um, there's a tendency um, in the early part of last century when people came to America there was Stefan Adim who coming from uh, Syria there were Ashkenazim coming from Poland and um, the reality in America was that Saturday was a work day Mm -hmm. you either worked or you lost your job Um, right now, this is way over-exaggerated in religious sources. A, a small amount of people absolutely refused to work on Shabbat. Yeah. Absolutely refused. And they lost the job all the time. And, of course, this Mesirat Nefesh wasn't, of course, on themselves. It was on their, on their, on, at the cost of their own wife and children. So um, 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 we can also debate the propriety of it, of whether it was indeed the most uh, righteous thing to do in the world. But that's a different debate for another time. Um, um, I'm not take a position either way but I wouldn't immediately jump to say that what they did was 100% um, the best thing to do but the vast majority of other Jews felt that they had to feed their poor children who by the way are not obliged to keep Shabbat if they're not uh, bar or bat mitzvah and, and shouldn't have to have to um, uh, suffer because of uh, because of uh, a father who who who, um, who forces his mesirat nefesh on them why would they suffer? It's not. It's him going to work, not there. It's him. But if he, if he doesn't go to work, then there's nothing right, to eat. Right. The fact that they're not obliged in Shabbat has no bearing on the question of whether. So he why should, should they be Shabbat. Mosir, not nefesh for Shabbat? Ah, okay. So there we go. 
So like that's that. Why that's, should they be more sinful? The question for is, is 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 it more sinful on them because they're not getting enough food? Which, as you say, it's, it's a bigger conversation. It's, it's, it's not, a separate conversation, right. and it's not relevant to anything. Ah, and so you're saying or, that, or that if he's if but, his wife if he's not feeding his wife, like if his wife is starving the, because the, of the, it, the, you the, can at least argue that she's also chayav in the serious nefesh. But his kids clearly aren't, and so you can make the case that therefore he shouldn't be. Anyway, he shouldn't be no, starving them. Okay, yeah, I, 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 get, I get what anyway, you're anyway, it's it's a different discussion. It's got very little to do with anything that we're discussing here, but um. At the end of the day, you find this trend where Sephardim went to work on Saturday, Ashkenazim went to work on Saturday, and uh, more often than not, um, the Ashkenazim tended to, you know, they, if they started working on Saturday, then they feel like, which you cannot justify. Mm-hmm. It's just an absolute breach of law. There's no way that you can pull your way around working on Shabbat. So mm-hmm. they just dropped everything. And they're lucky if their grandkids are still Jewish. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sephardim may have worked on, on Shabbat, but before they went off to work, they went to Beit Knesset to pray, and then they went to work, and they did everything else that they could. And in fact, when they could stop working on Saturday, more often than not, they did. Now, they, they since may not be the most religious people in the world, but they're Jewish. I'm going to ask you a weird question. Do you think that this phenomenon is related to what you might say is like... Uh, lower observed levels of neuroses amongst Sephardi well, there's, Jews? There's, there's an element of that, but there is an element of that, but, um, um, and, 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 and I have a lot of theories as to why it is, but, um, but it's not really the, the point over here. The point that I'm trying to um, uh, draw out is that um, if your Judaism is based on consistently justifying every breach of law that you mm-hmm. do, when you cannot justify right. it, you know, it's, it's all or nothing thing. For Safaradim, it's never been an all or nothing thing. For example, uh, Rabbi Ben Hayim, who's the chief rabbi of the Persian community in Great Neck, um, set up um, uh, valet parking at his Beth Knesset for people who drive there on Shabbat and Yom Tov. Yom Tov, at least arguably turning on the car driving, is not the biggest problem, but ex- extinguishing the flame, turning it off is, is more of a problem, so at least they're, you know, they're not breaching that. Oh, so and with the Shabbat, valet parks for them. And, yeah, and exactly. And not Jewish. Wow. And then, and then Shabbat, Shabbat, well, wow. yes, you're breaking, you're breaking Shabbat by driving to Shul, but at least, at a minimum, you're not turning off the car. You're not doing mechabe. Um, so, you know, um, they, they, they're, they're, coming to, they're coming to, to, to Beit Knesset. What's his name, Rabbi Ra- Ben? Rav Ben Chaim. He's the chief rabbi of the uh, Persian community in uh, the Mashadi community in Great Neck. And he is the chief rabbi of the Sephardi Beth Din of New York. The chief, uh, the Beth Din. Anyway, it's just an example of how you deal with the inability to follow the law always. So you don't keep a law. Fine, you're human. It's okay. Right. It won't kill you. I mean, I mean, I mean, here's the thing. The dishonesty of the people who find a way to justify everything they do wrong so they can say, I try my best. I don't ever purposefully break anything. You're lying to yourselves. Right. Um, whereas for me, um, for example, you know, there are things which, uh, you know, I, I know I'm I, not 100% according to the law, um, and, but I admit I'm not perfect. Right. This is something I do. Um, I mean, that's somehow seen as less observant, to be honest. It's less observant, to be honest, than it is to lie about that's what you're doing. That's very interesting. Um, and, and that's, and that's uh, you know, uh, uh, so to take the example from before, like if I did go to a live concert, well then, yeah, I know I'm breaking the law. And I you, won't and pretend that I'm not. That, right. I wouldn't pretend that I'm not. I'm telling you, yes, I'm breaking the law. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you. Um, but but let's 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 we, we before I just I, want to say that we have to go and discuss the system because that should really be more important than okay, these things. Okay, I think we're going to get into the system. I I want to say a couple of things that have um, sort of built up here. Mm. First of all, with the idea of um, uh, 
this, this Ashkenazi versus in neurosis, maybe we'll circle back around to that if we have time. Because I'd be interested to hear at least which way you think the causation goes, if you're willing to talk about that. Is it that the neurosis leads to the obsession with rewriting the law, or is it the obsession with rewriting the law leads to greater neurosis, if they are related? I mean, I don't know if you well, want to do They that. are related, but it's more complex than that. There's other okay. factors so as we'll well. So leave, we'll leave that for now. It's more like A leads to B leads to C leads to D than it is to... Right, and then you yeah. have interaction effect. Let yeah. me add, uh, but, then, but then with regards to... Um, Redefining the law according to the practice. I mean, there's, there's a story that, which I'm sure you're familiar with of, um, of the arrival of Hillel in Jerusalem when the sons of Becerra were um, presiding over the, of the court. And um, he gave such a good lecture, it is said, that they instantly made him the Nazi. The story's familiar to you, right? Yeah. So then, the, then um, so there's something about his... Um, like, they, the way the story's told, like, uh, he, he got a bit proud about his position and so... You know, he had, like, I don't know, the Lord set him up to stumble on something. And they asked him, like, okay, so if it's, um, how do we get the knife to the to the temple to slaughter the sheep if the, the Chag falls on a Shabbat? And he was like, I don't know, but let's go out and um, watch what the Jews do tomorrow. Um, if they're not prophets, they are the sons of prophets. Or... If you want to translate B'nai Nevi'im according to how Rambam himself seems to use it in Mishneh Torah, if they are not prophets, they are the disciples of prophets. And so they, they have something of the prophetic about them. And then they go out and watch, and what they see is that the Jews are, or the proto-Hebrews, whatever you want to call them, are, um, are, are, uh, are keeping the knives, in the, they're placing the knives in the wool of the sheep, and then the sheep is carrying the knife to the temple, which has a strange poetry to it. All of its own, but but anyway, that I mean, is I that where not an example of, of the I same sort of thing that this. you're okay. accusing the Tosafists of inventing? Well, well, it, it is, but 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 the lack of a, a system in which you've played, the lack of framework, is, is is the undoing of these types of arguments. Is that you can bring anything from anywhere to prove anything from the massive, vast corpus of Jewish literature? The question is, is bring it, bringing it correct? And there's a reason why bringing that particular uh, quote, "Puk Amadavar," is not particularly relevant. Could, could you translate which, that phrase, please? For me? That's the tr- the phrase. Go see what the what the what the people do. Say it, say it again. Go, oh, go, go, like go yeah. out, right? Go out and see what what. Puk the... go out and see. My Amadavar. My Amadavar. Yeah. Right. What's the actual? What's going on? Yeah. Go see what the people are doing now. My um, the Davar is doing. Davar. Davar. It's, it's Aramaic. Oh, uh, what's what's the meaning? Doing. Well, like Ose? See what the matter. See what the matter is amongst the people. Right. Well, well, right. Now, uh, it's lack of the framework. Really, that's that's the undoing over here. Because yes, you can say, oh well, they're just the Tosfos are just following the ways of the rabbis of the Talmud. Um, so now we really have to start focusing on, 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 on the system. And Let's get into it. It is the focus on the system uh, which would really, really uh, explain what's going on over here. Um, what's something I was going to say? I, I missed it. I've lost it now. It's okay. I imagine it'll come back. It'll come back. Oh, yes. It's important to note, first and foremost, that the mm. terms Sepharadim and Ashkenazim are not ethnic terms. Um, there are basically Sepharadim Shehem Ashkenazim, Sepharadim who are basically Ashkenazi, and there are Ashkenazim Shehem Sepharadim, and Ashkenazim who are essentially Sepharadim. They are not ethnic terms. 
uh, and this is a point, a very key point, which we'll have to uh, circle back to. And uh, I, you know, may use the term safari. I need to relate to refer to myself as a as a term of uh, for the ease of use because it's something that people sort of understand, sort mm. of know, but it's not technically true and you know to call me safari compared to the the majority of people who call safari nowadays um, but it's only out of out of out of east so we've got to start there's two separate sections we have to start with pre-close of talmud halakha mm. and post-close of talmud halakha and really each one could go on for hours but i'll try to shorten as much as possible so your questions from before have ignored that there is a boundary between the two when you say the Talmud does what the Tosafists do, what's mm. the difference? Uh, when you say the Talmud, in one specific circumstance, I note, was was concerned, you know, looked at what the people do, mm. um, and now you're trying to say we should do it not just in one specific circumstance, in every circumstance. Um, I'm ignoring the the codification of Ravina and Ravashi. I'll get to that. You've jumped ahead, but yes, you are ignoring the codification of mm-hmm. Ravina and Ravashi, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, you've also taken a specific ex- a specific example and somehow assumed that it's a general rule that now if the people do something, it's justified. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying um, that. Hang and, on, hang and, on, and, and, I want to want to clarify the extent to which I'm arguing that, and I'll let you get back to the main thrust of your argument. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying that. Since since Hillel does this with the sons of Becerra, therefore the Tosafists are allowed to do it. Or, or oh no, no, not the Tosafists. That, that it's a justification for the fact that Jews do something, therefore it must be okay. Oh, therefore, no. But what I am saying is, it does seem to be an an example of sages whom we universally accept to be sages doing this sort of practice. So if you're if you want to argue that. Actually, the right way of doing law is we codify top-down in all cases, and that's it, and then we make no allowances for what people do. You have a problem in this particular case. Now, you can say, oh, this is one particular case, and you can give a reason why it was okay here, but it's not okay in medieval Europe, and maybe that reason is more than satisfactory. But I, but you don't get to. It's not as easy a case to just say, "Oh, we we codifies. That's what we do, and there's no place uh, there." Because the, the the issue is the abandoning around these term codifiers and codification okay. of law. Whatever and it's, and it's, replace it's, it's, um, same way you abandon around Sephardi. I'm just I'm just right. using it for ease of use. But you get what I'm trying to right? Right. Okay. Right. I'm right. not well, I'm not arguing that that they do it. Therefore, anyone anyway, everyone can get away with it. I am, but I am saying it's a bit more. You're trying to trying to make your case becomes a bit more complicated because there's clearly at least one counterexample. Right, so that's, that's I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend and say that all forms of Judaism don't have some sort of basis basis in Jewish thought. They all do. Reform is also has its basis in Jewish text, as does conservative Judaism and Orthodox Judaism and any, any other form that you can imagine. So of course there's a basis for it. The question is, is it correct or not? And that's a different, a different, a different question. So we'll start from the beginning. There is a commandment in the Torah of the you should do that which they have um, made a legal ruling to you to do. The word hora'ah is the creation of a legal ruling. This is a, this, I remember you told me about this once years ago when, in like a very brief chat that I remember wishing were, were longer. You're saying that people often misunderstand the word Torah to mean teaching and it's actually like a legal legal judgment. So it means law. To law. Well, essentially a Hora'ah is a legal ruling. We have a whole mm-hmm. Masechah called Hora'ah, which mm-hmm. refers to legal rulings of, either, you know, it's the court of the, the Sanhedrin or a Bethdin or it's the court of the, the, 
or the um, the court of or the Kohen uh, Gadol. Um, we talk about their sort of rulings and when they make a mistake in ruling, things like that. But they're referred to as a hora'a, which is can, a legal ruling. Can I, can I the shoresh like of the word is yeah. hara, to give birth, to create something new. That's hey, resh. Hey, resh, hey, yes. Hey, resh, hey? Yeah. And that, and, and what's the, what's the, what's the, the similar word that pe- that is, uh, that means teaching? There what's, isn't. There isn't. People say hora'a as a teaching. For example, in Chabad, it's a hora from the Rebbe. It's a teaching of the Rebbe. But that isn't what it means. It's very similar to the word moreh. People think that the word moreh means a teacher. It doesn't. Okay. There, there's a word in Hebrew for a teacher, and it's melamed. So what does moreh mean? A moreh is someone who creates hora'a. Such a moreh d'athra, the legal authority of a place. A moreh hora'a, someone who gives a legal ruling. The word Torah, therefore, same root, means law. Right. So when, so when it is translated as the law, that yeah. is uh, therefore an accurate translation. Okay. Um, so, so that's if that that translation is universally inaccurate. So universally um, inaccurate. Then, like your your, if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, it's. Um, who said anything about universal? Plenty of people are, uh, do translate the, the word Torah as the law. No, but, I, but what I mean to say is like every use, like every use of, of hora or more in, in, in I, I don't know, in, as you're saying, in, in the classical, Hasid, in Hasidic, classical Classical use of Hebrew, well, that's a rabbinic use. Right. Rabbinic use. Um, it's universally uh, yeah. legal, legal transfer rather than teaching yeah the word melamed is a teacher because the the root of of lamed mem dalid is both to learn and to teach thus a teacher just simply passes on that which he has was taught himself that's uh, what he learned himself like related to the um, modern Hebrew word Oter, meaning atar, like a site, no, right? No, Atar. Aleph Tafresh is a place. A pl- all right. It is, it is Aramaic. Anyway, um, I assume you'll be editing most of that out. But... No, not at all. This is, this is great content. Okay, cool. <laughs> anyway, um, although in the Aramaic as well, the, it's not more it's Mara as Memresh Aleph, but not too important. The point is that the meaning is essentially the same. Um, but uh, the more thus gives a hora'a. And uh, the result of this is that we're talking about legislators, mm-hmm. essentially. Hora'a is a, is a binding legal ruling. Mm-hmm. All right. So, is talking about those who are entitled to make binding legal rulings. Um, that is and has always traditionally be seen as being the uh, prerogative of one body and one body alone. The, the Grand Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. Um, and I'll, I'll just, as a side point, I'll note that if your Judaism, for some reason, doesn't require a key institution to Judaism, mm-hmm. such as a, a temple or a Sanhedrin, or any other institution that's central to the Jewish people, when there's probably something wrong with your, your Judaism. The fact that 
um, Jews probably don't feel the need like they need a Sanhedrin because every time they have a Suffolk in law or they have something else, they'll just find some way to deal with it with Pilpul or go to a big rabbi or the God of or something or another. Hmm. Uh, for example, on the on the case of um, the case of um, of halach, uh, you know, halach on, on different fertility issues, um, hmm. such as um, look, look, you could try to apply already existing legal. Uh, pr- uh, principles in Judaism to the, the circumstance. L- maybe they do apply, maybe they don't. But a lot of the discussion of the rabbis in this area is, is complete invention um, because it's quite clear that this, this was never expressly dealt with. And so there's no, no there's, there may not necessarily be a law on it, um, but so be it. But um, I think they understand that. They're just doing the best they can in the absence of a sitting Sanhedrin, right? No, no. You will find times throughout history, and I have some papers which discuss this both in Hebrew and upcoming one in English, um, where which highlight that in fact... When you say they, I have some papers, you mean you, that you've published? That I'm, I'm publ- I have published, will publish, that type of thing, mm. um, on this very thing, where, where, where they do state quite clearly, rabbi, post-dominant rabbis do find ways to claim the authority of a Sanhedrin and to change the law. Um, and they do so explicitly. And this is, of course... Considered to be a horrific power grab by um, by by Andalusians, and and the names of the people who do this are we're talking about big names. We're talking about the Mordechai, um, and we're talking about the Rosh. Um, wow. We're talking about the, the author the author of Sefer Hachinuch, um, who attempt, attempts to grab authority that was always historically the the remit of a Sanhedrin and a Sanhedrin only. Um, the key point is is that. Th- in the examples that you gave of Puk see what the people do, that was in the case when the legislators decided that they were going to determine the law in that way. Well, that's their right to do so. They'd still have to vote. And then we'd follow the majority. Mm. It's, a, it's a democratic vote of, of the Sanhedrin. But they were legislators. They were entitled to do it. In the example of the knife for the milah, they were legislators. They were entitled to do it. The Tosafists are not legislators. This is precisely the point that Maimonides makes at the beginning of his uh, introduction to Mishnah Torah about the end of the Misorah, at, uh, ending at um, Babai Misorah, we mean legally binding, uh, a legal tradition, common law sort of precedent, ends at Ravina and Ravashi, uh, because, uh, who wrote the Talmud. <coughs> they were the last people who had the ability, the political ability, where all the Jews were in, or the majority of the Jews in Babel, they had the political ability to govern the nation. Now, Ravina and Rashi might say, oh, well, oh, that wasn't technically a Sanhedrin. It wasn't technically a Sanhedrin in the way that it was in the times of uh, the Mishnah and earlier, but it was still um, um, the, the legal equivalent of a Sanhedrin. What do you mean the legal, legal equivalent of a Sanhedrin? Well, essentially, the, the Kalot of Rav Asher, the everyone head, would, say again? The Kalot of Rav Asher, known as the Yachai Kalot, whatever, all the, oh, all the, the sages, all the, all the sages all, in between like and, harvest and, periods or whatever. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. The sages and the average Jew would also join in. Okay. And would be present there. And they would debate the laws and they'd vote on it. And they'd come to a conclusion in much the same way as Sanhedrin would. So uh, if you have enough of the what enough of the great sages of, alive at a time in a place, you can presume yeah, that to also, be a Sanhedrin? Yeah, also, but also presumably they had some form of semichan. By that, I don't mean... Semicha in the modern sense, I mean um, Semicha in its literal sense, some sort of authority that they would have each received from their teacher, that they are Ra'ui Lahora. Why, why do you feel comfortable presuming that? Because my mom does. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and, and, and the reason why he does is because of the fact that the 200 Chachamim from Eretz Israel went to Babel. 
and 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 continued and gave it the authority essentially um, and said that's why we don't follow the Yerushalmi we follow the Bavli um, um, consistently is because of that the fact that they all accepted the authority it is the key acceptance of the people of of their authority is also and also the fact that um, that um, two hundred chachamim from Israel is in 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 Rambam's theory is how you recreate Semicha as well. What do you mean how you recreate Semicha? Recreate the old Semicha where you know you'd literally ish be ish you know mm-hmm. one would put his hands on the person's head and make him Raula Hora as it used to be until the, um, we lost it. He says you would get two hundred chachamim from Israel to be Semich. On this one person, that person can now be give some mechah. That's how, of course, Marana Mechaber, Rav Yosef Karo, his teacher Mari Beirav, got some mechah, and he gave it to his five students. One of them was Marana Mechaber. Whoa! And that, is, that's how he did it. He got two hundred sages together, and they they two hundred sages gave Mari of Mari Beirav some and he gave to five of his students. <laughs> which, by the way, inherently gives Maran Maran the author of Shulchan Aruch more more authority than anyone else, including the Rama, because the Rama definitely did not have some in, in the literal sense. Huh, um, that's and, really interesting. And the Mahaber clearly did. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a, it's a, said in a joking sort of fashion amongst Sephardim that Maran is Rosh Tevot, Mataim Rabbanim Nismachu. Mataim Rabbanim Nismachu. Oh, like he 200 was, rabbis smichet him. Basically something. Right. He was, he was uh, yeah. So, um, whatever the case may be. So that's a big event. So, whatever so the case in this may model, be. hang on, in this model, Smicha leaves, exits the Jewish people as a phenomenon at the time of Ravashi and then re-enters in the time of Rabbi Yosef teacher? I, I, I'm not so sure that Smicha just... Smicha is not... Smicha is, is the basis of the individual authority of the person who... In other words, to be a member of Sanhedrin, you have to have Smicha. Why? Because in Judaism you have to be qualified to be a judge. That's your qualification. That's your degree, your diploma, as it were. So, but it doesn't, it's not the basis of the authority of Sanhedrin. The basis of the authority of Sanhedrin is much more complex, but specifically, it's the acceptance of the people, it's, it's political ability to operate as a Sanhedrin. Um, they had that ability in Bavel, then the Jews spread out too much and they lost that ability. Uh, as a result, um, it wasn't representative of Am Yisrael, and it does need to be representative of Am Yisrael. Um, it couldn't speak for Am Yisrael, and therefore the result was uh, there no, was no longer any authority. And anyone who accepts Talmud needs to accept this, because the Talmud says, Rav Ashi Ravina Suf Hora'ah. They are the end of binding legal judgment. They're the end of legislation. So everything that comes after that cannot be legislation. It can be application of law. Hmm. But essentially every rabbi post-Talmud, and it's a bit of a anachronism to use the term rabbi, because of course, at the end of Sinema there are no rabbis, um, but every rabbi post-Talmud is essentially a lawyer, whereas pre the end of Talmud, they were both judges and, um, and, and legislators. Hmm. Um, so the legislators, are, uh, they're, they're allowed to do those things. They're allowed to use sevara. Okay, You're allowed to come up and say, and, and use the reason behind the law to perhaps uh, uh, modify the law. You can, you can um, uh, make exemptions and you can make... Um, changes to it. Now, that does not mean that Sephardim, who have been very Ramadan, have not been very creative. So that they have been creative, Sephardim who but they create that who have been Maimonidin, mm. I suppose, or who have understood these principles, have been very creative in mm. the application of law, in understanding the factual circumstances, not in changing the law. The legal categories don't change. They're a constant. Right. 
they are constant. But I mean, when, when you have Rabbi Yol Circus, the Bach, famously as he's known, comes along and permits Chodosh, you know, to eat wheat that hasn't, um, that's been harvested but hasn't gone through a Pesach yet, um, um, and he comes up with a way to permit it when no one in history has permitted it, he's clearly changing the law. He's not changing the application, he's changing the law. Um, this is what they're doing. We've got to be, be honest about it and blunt about it. And here's the thing, the Geonim who came immediately after the Talmud, hmm. literally the grandchildren of the Emoraim. You had the Savoraim, but it's not so relevant. You had the Geonim who came immediately after in Bovel, in the same historic contents, context, in sort of more or less the same uh, culture. Um, yeah, I know that the, the Islamic conquest happened in that whole period, but it doesn't really change the fact. Um, they interpreted the Talmud in a specific way, and it is in line with what I'm calling the Maimonidean and Andalusian tradition, but could easily be called the Babylonian tradition and the Gonic tradition. They didn't come along and start changing law like crazy. They were having problems with people who were trying to do it. That's definitely certain. Um, <laughs> it didn't take long for that to show up. No, it didn't. It didn't. Rav Sherira Goon refers to them in a certain Teshuvah. In, in Teshuvah Tageonim, it's in Shari Tzedek and Shari Teshuvah and a few other places. He refers them to Shualim Ketanim as uh, little, little foxes. foxes. <laughs> little foxes. Uh, it's a reference. It's, it's, it's actually quite a complex thing, but... He oh, yeah, that's a, there's a, there's a, the fox iconography in the Talmud is an extraordinarily complex thing in itself. Yes, yes. Um, and it's, a, it's also a, a reference to the Pasuk in, the, in, in Tanakh, Shualim Ketanim Mechablei HaKerem. Um, the, like, the little foxes who who damage or who attack the vineyard, the vineyard being uh, oh wow being the tradition. Um, but where where is that? Um, the the pasuk uh, escapes me, but the uh, in, in prophets the, or like the later teshuva, It's in Nevi'im, I believe. But yeah, um, yeah. the um, uh, yeah, but the teshuva you'll find in teshuva tageonim. Mm. Um, I write about it quite extensively, actually, um, in some of my papers. The, the reality of all this, or the, the upshot of all this, I should, I should say more correctly, is that basically what you have is you have the Parliament of Australia has gone on hiatus, right? There is no one making law. That doesn't mean the law has ended. It doesn't mean the law has disappeared. It means that we're sitting on what we've got for the next few hundred years until frozen. we get and, Yeah, until, until we, we get, get yeah, until, it's, until it sits again. Hmm. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the, the important point about all this is that... Um, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, yes, that's right. Okay, so the point, one of the biggest points about this is what is Torah Shabal Peh? We need to sort of define it. Um, so Rambam in his Akdama says uh, that the Torah, the written Torah is Torah Shabal Zot Torah Shabal Zot Torah Shabal That which we call Mitzvah is Torah Shabal So anything that's a Mitzvah, is Torah Shabbat. So in other words, even the idea that something is a mitzvah is Torah Shabbat. It's a matter of the oral law. So when the rabbis, it's, it was in the power of the Sanhedrin to say what is and isn't a mitzvah. For example, I could argue, based on Pesukim, why isn't there a mitzvah to go to conquer Eretz Israel? Because the Kuh was a mitzvah. It was a mitzvah that, you know, Yeshua had and everything else already in, in the Chumash. Mm. But the Sanhedrin decided, no, it's not a mitzvah. So even they get to the... So the text of the Torah is a Torah Shabbat. 
but the what is a mitzvah, what isn't, isn't a law, and that definition is given in the hands of the Sanhedrin. What we talk about is the uh, Tariag mitzvah, the six Yeah, that count commitment. comes up in the Talmud. But it's interesting that because in, in I believe it's in the Sifri, it says mm-hmm. that there are 300 mitzvot say. I mean, in, in Talmud, it says there's 248. So even the number of the mitzvot can change because it's within the power of the Sanhedrin. And that's even within the, the same genera- like generations of Talmudic transmission right the sifri is contemporary with the no the sifri was uh tenetic. right so that so right so there's a disagreement even within the within the um Tanaitic sources as to how many mitzvah there are well no there's disagreement no who said there's a disagreement at different points in time there would have been different so mitzvot. there are 300 positive commandments on in the in the Tanaitic period but well later one on, rabbi is so claimed Right, but later on there were two hundred and forty-eight, according to the Talmudic. Well, according to the claim of that rabbi at that time, yes. Okay, so I mean, so I mean, I mean, the counting, of course, everyone can count laws differently. Right. Because theoretically, as was pointed out by many commentators, you could count thousands of mitzvot if you wanted to, a laws if you wanted to. Um, 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 so it just depends on how you count or whatever. But the point is that zvar mitzvah zotor is what. Maimonides says. Okay. So, in other words, the interpretation of, or the application, or the, or the creation of law mm. is given to the Sanhedrin. So, the Torah is just a document, uh, essentially. The written Torah is a document. It's the constitution. But the law is in the hands of the legislators. The, much the same way that the, it doesn't really matter what the, um, what the U.S. Constitution says. It matters how the U.S. Supreme Court interprets it. And, and it matters what laws the U.S. Congress makes. Those mm. are the law. The, the Constitution isn't as much the law as it is as a source document, um, which that's can be a used. Really, that's a really good analogy. I'm not, the, I'm not the first person to have made the analogy between the Jewish Republic, the Hebrew Republic, and, uh, and the U.S. Uh, Republic that was Both actually shining. made in the 1800s by a very interesting Jew called Herman Cohen. Both there are shining sh- cities on the hill. Yes, both both have stri- there is striking similarities, and it's arguable that the uh, American founders of independence were quite, um, so Home and Cohen argues, were um, uh, highly influenced by um, the Jewish the, the Hebraic system. Interesting, it, it, even, a, even the excellent he- book. It's now open source. You can you know you can it's open, no copyright on it. So you can go and look it up. It's called The Origins of Republicanism in the United States by Herman Cohen. Do you know how he oh, sorry, the, the origins of the Republican form of government in the United States. And he has a whole chapter there on the Hebrew Republic. Wow. Is it Herman with one N or two Ns? Uh, I presume two Ns. The origins of the Republican forms of government? The Republican form of government form in the United States. of government in the United States. There you go. Anyway. And he wrote that in the 1800s? Yeah. Wow. Early 1800s, um, I believe. So... Um, so the point is, is that in Sefer Mamrim, in Hilchot Mamrim, sorry, um, Rambam then goes on to say that the Sanhedrin, or Habetin Gadol, he doesn't use the word Sanhedrin, Habetin Gadol, Hem Ikar Torah Shebaal Peh. They are the, the essence or the source or the root of the Torah Shabbat Peh? I'd go with the word root. Root? Hmm. In other words, the Sanhedrin are the Torah Shabbat Peh. In the fact that they are the source. Any Torah Shabbat Peh is created by them. Therefore, mm-hmm. they are conflatable, validly so, with the Torah Shabbat Peh. Okay. 
So essentially, in, in a way, there is no Torah Shabbat after they don't exist, in the sense that there's no continual evolution or There's no ongoing creative there's process no, there's in no ongoing, Exactly. Right. Or, or there shouldn't be, anyway. Um, <laughs> there shouldn't past, be. Past Ravashi, you mean? Yes, past Ravina and Ravashi, there shouldn't be. At least until we get our act together and, and, and create a synergy. Um, uh, just a little side point over here. Um, in one of his uh, uh, letters that the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote against restarting a Sanhedrin, because he was opposed to it, um, um, and by the way, I'm not, by the way, necessarily saying that we should start a Sanhedrin nowadays with the types of rabbis who would be on it. I, Let's I'm not, kick it off! I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that we are dum, in a dum, fit dum, state dum, to have a... I'm not so sure we're in a fit state to have a Sanhedrin in any case. Well, fair enough. But, but um, so I'm not necessarily saying that it should would happen you, tomorrow. If, there were, if, there, if it were to happen tomorrow, do you think you could find 71 fitting people to sit on it? It'd be very difficult, but anyway, in um, they'd also you know have to have the people's acceptance and trust. Right. So that, that you've got you've got you're in a dilemma there, right? Because you need to find someone that you you think is legally up to scratch, but also someone. It's, it's who a separate has the conversation. I'd, I'd rather discuss the, the the framework and the system rather than the. Uh, the, the what ifs and the maybes. Yeah, sure, uh, but I feel like it's, it's an interesting. It's it interesting, is an interesting discussion, and I think that there's there's a lot of stuff that's going to come up. I've we, thought about. We it. only get to touch on for know, 25 seconds, but I think I think for for me at least, and also for the listeners, 25 seconds is a lot better than three seconds. You know, so if you have Fair to enough. indulge 25 seconds of postulation, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> well, um, I think a Sanhedrin does need to be broadly representative of Jewish people. Um, we live in a world where the Beth Din of a city, for example, is dominated by usually the most extreme Haredim of the city um, when there are observant Jews of all flavors who don't have a rabbi to represent them on a Beth Din. I mean, that's mm. pretty horrible. And then they have the, uh, I want to say the temerity to call themselves community, but they did. No one else calls them that. They call themselves that. Um, um, but yeah. I don't think I need to speak too much about that, but it is a problem, and I think it would be a problem with any Sanhedrin. I, I, mean, I, I don't have your legal background, and I don't have you know the same the same. Um, you know, the, I'm not making this this any this uh, this analogy with anywhere near the education that you've made your analogies, but it does it does strike me as at least somewhat similar to the um, the ongoing kerfuffle over whether a the sitting Democratic or Republican president gets to put the next person on the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, there are similarities that can be drawn with any sort of political process where, which is non, not, not, not as representative as it should be. Mm. Um, it's not so, so much that the halakha requires representation, but it requires public acceptance. And, and those two things tend to go hand in hand. Uh, well, I would, sort of. Sort Interesting. Of. Does um, a bethdin of a city require public um, yeah, acceptance in the same way that it, a Sanhedrin does? In some ways does? more so than a Sanhedrin. What do you mean in some ways more so? Because they really don't have authority if people don't... don't, don't. Oh, you mean a Sanhedrin could in principle just send out people to, to break kneecaps? Pretty much. <laughs> but, only, but only post facto, right? Like in order for Sanhedrin to be... Initially, the, 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 they need to, they need to uphold the law. Yeah, the power to uphold the law. But um, no, but, yeah. but hang on, hang on. Hang on. No, but also, in order to establish a Sanhedrin in the first place, you've got to have public acceptance. Once it's established, then it has legal enforcement powers, right? Because, because, that, because the I, only because am the I correct only, in that or not? No, it's a little bit more complicated okay. because the only real ultimate legal authority 
uh, on Earth, really, is um, is the Sanhedrin. Mm. Um, if a Sanhedrin exists, then sort of by extension, it's what lower courts will have more inherent authority. When it doesn't exist, they really only have authority with the public acceptance of, of their authority. Right, as such. it's about... Um, as such. It's... Uh, oh, man. Uh, the, the great Mike Foyer has this great, this great piece on this about, how, about the transformation of um, the rabbinic court system from the sort of thing that could follow through on its legal judgments with um, you know, the threat of violence that's pretty much universal uh, to, to legal systems. And when and and the the transformation of that into the loss of our autonomy. Well, along with the loss of autonomy comes the the loss of enforceability of the law, and then it becomes a lot more about who like about about which rabbinic authorities are the, do the people collectively accept, and and will they will they accept the rulings <laughs> of that authority based on? Well, you know, it's all, it's their, almost an irony. It's almost an irony that um, the more our courts, uh, Jewish communities, lost their legal autonomy. Um, you know, uh, being the price to pay for emancipation, and some would argue it's not worth it. Um, um, but when they lost their autonomy at the as a price for emancipation, um, in fact, their um, courts, when they had our courts, but they didn't when they had more power, would have been more, you know, representative and more accepted by their publics than they are now when they have a, uh, no autonomy or no real authority. Um, they're less accepted now, with less power. The back when they had more power, they were more accepted, arguably. But that's just a, a, an interesting little observation. But mm. now we have to move on to what really happens when now, when the at the close. So Ravina Ravashi closed binding law. We don't have a Sanhedrin. We can't do anything. So what happens to authority? Well, the truth is there is none. The law remains the authority as it always has been. We are a, a, a nation where the law is king, not the king is law. So we've always had a rule of law. Um, and the law continues to be king for us, hmm. but you don't have people who are in a position of being able to modify it or change it. The result, therefore, is is that um, Ram, Rambam continues to say in Hilchot Mamrim, and people really misquote this all the time. He does not say Safek Derabanan Lekula Safek Doraita Lechumra. He says, Im encha yodea lehechan hadin note. If you personally do not know in which which way the the law um, note means sort of to sways which way the law sways in a in this place of doubt because you know post Talmud some people a new a new circumstances come up some people say mutar some people say asur some people say tameh some people say tahor um, so uh, some people say kasher some people say taref so. When that arises, if you do not know which way the law sways, which which close, what's you don't have a, a clear way to determine what the law is. Bishel Torah halach achara machmir. Bishel divrei sofrim halach achara mekel. If it is a matter of the Oridic law, you go after the more stringent view. Um, but if it's a matter of, of, of law instituted by the uh, legislators, then you go um, according to the, to the lenient. It's not safekta oraita l'chumra, safekta darabana l'kula. im en Rule one, you have to not know. If you do know, follow your, your, your conscience. Follow what, but you have to have studied the law and make sure you understood it well. 
You can't be fooling yourself. How is how I'm not understanding the difference between what you're you're what you're saying. It's so that so so Rambam has a principle. You're saying it's commonly misunderstood to be A, but in fact it's B. And as I understand it, the A that you're saying is commonly misunderstood to be is um, uh, doubt in the case of of Torah law. We go we 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 tend to the stringent. Doubt in the case of rabbinic law. We tend to the lenient. And you're saying no. There's a there's a preface that's essential here to understanding Ramam's point, and that is, if you do not know, then and so on. But isn't that if you do not know based into the word sofek, based into the, no. the phrase doubtful? No, because it depends what you mean by the word um, sofek. Okay. If there's a sofek, like the law is truly unclear, that's one thing. If the law's unclear, it's unclear. We're not talking about whether the law is necessarily unclear. We're talking about whether you know the law and you know what the law is. Ah, so it's not about whether the law itself is unclear. It's about, it's about your own level of ignorance as to regards to the law. I didn't say ignorance. It's, a, it's epistemological rather than ontological? The point is, you may be fully aware of everything that's going on. You may be fully aware of all the arguments. And still, it's not and clear. Are, and, and, and yet, it's not clear what the law is. For whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It's not clear to you. Then, follow the arguments of those who are strict and derided, and follow those that are lenient and diverse of him. But the, the, it's, it's, it's different also in the sense that people use suffix derabanan, suffix derabanan, they tend to think that the, the suffix may be in a factual matrix or a factual set of circumstances. It's never about the facts. It's always about the law. Ah, so that's interesting. So If you don't know what the facts are, go look it up. Work it out. Also, you need to know, do I actually have to know the facts? In or? the Talmud, it seems to go according to the fact quite often, though, right? Like, Suffolk could apply to factual cases, not just legal cases. Well, it can. Mm. It can. I'm not saying that it can't be applied to this. I'm saying in this particular circumstance. You're saying when, when Rambam means it, he means it. It's in this... a Suffolk about your... Legal, the you received understanding of the legal tradition, not a specific about the the circumstances of exactly of the question. Okay, got it. Exactly. Yeah. This is what we're talking about because we are talking about the legal system here. We're not talking about um, specific circumstances. Anyway, so the point that, that what that therefore means is that there is no one who has authority over you. It doesn't matter if he's given the label Rishon or Acharon or whatever else. We're all essentially in the same. I mean, you, you should probably show respect to people who are, you know, um, closer to. Talmudic times, and the, you know, and who are great scholars or whatever it is, but um, in, in, as in a pure legalistic sense, um, the Rosh doesn't have any more authority than I do, or any less, for that matter. It's just the way it is. Neither does Maimonides. Maimonides is authoritative insofar as he reflects the Talmudic law. And Maimonides says, that his intention is to give you the conclusions of the laws in, in the discussions of the Talmud. He's not there to give his own opinion. It's not his book. He's not writing a perush. When, 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 when the Rosh is writing a perush, he's writing his opinion. When the Rambam writes his Mishneh Torah, he's writing, to the best of his ability, what the law is. And here's the, the difference. Because when you start allowing people to give their own opinions, then you start changing the law, what it should be, what it shouldn't be. Um, whereas if you're just stating the law as it is, whether or not you agree with it or disagree with it, that the law is the law. 
This is uh, you find this amongst, for example, um, in the secular world. There's always this argument about judicial activists versus uh, legal positivists, or you know, people who just what's the law? What does the law say? What does the text mean? They might even look at the intention of the legislators, but the law is what it is. It's not what I want it to be. Um, whereas for legal activists, they'll say, well, it's always subjective. There's always an element of subjectivity, sort of a postmodernist argument. Um, there's also a lot of power things at play there. A lot of them tend to like Foucault and that sort of thing, um, that um, there's always power imbued into this. And so therefore, they would argue that, well, well, you know, we should take an active part in steering the law one way or another. But of course, the Jewish system is a positivist system and that the law is what it says. It's not, it isn't what it doesn't say. Um, um, so that's sort of giving your opinion and about what it should or shouldn't be lovely, but it's not the law. So everyone likes to quote the statement, but they always forget the very next words. It was said as a statement to say, okay, fine, you both have valid views, but this is the law. That's it. Which means that you have to have the, uh, excuse the turn of phrase, but you have to have the uh, balls to be able to say, there are 28 opinions, 27 are wrong, this is the law. That's what it means to be machria. And But here's the thing, amongst the, the Gaonim, yes, you have some disagreement, but not a lot. Between Ruth and Rambam, there's some disagreement, but really very little. Rashi and his grandkids argue every second page of the Talmud. So which one do you think is passing on the tradition? In other words, when you look at the Yemenites who follow Rambam, not all Yemenites follow Rambam, but if you look at them, you see, you see that they are behaving in a way that you could see 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. It is a verifiable tradition. Um, I'm not saying we should all become Yemenites, and I'm not saying that everything they do is correct, because it's not. But I'm just saying that in principle, when the law system is, you follow the Talmud. So the, um, the, there's the difference between, uh, in, in, in terms that have been used by halachists or poiskim, they'll say it's the difference between halacha kekadmoi and halacha kebasroi. Halacha kekadmoi and halacha kebasroi. It's not too important to get into the terminology of it, but, the, but the, the key point is, is that the law is a law. We have an institution. We have our parliament. They're the ones who have the authority of law, no one else. So therefore, it doesn't really matter if they're even if they're, if they're adopting the types of terms that the Talmud used to, to legislate a law. You're still not a legislator. I can, I can um, you know, speak like uh, Prime Minister Scomo, use his exact turn of phrases. It doesn't make me him. I could write, um, I could uh, draft legislation in exactly the same style of the legislation of the Parliament of Australia. It doesn't make it the laws of Australia. It's a, it's a question of, of basic authority. Do you or do you not have jurisdiction? And if you don't, you don't. It's as simple as that. And thus you see that um, amongst the people of the Andalusian tradition that they kept this up. And the reason why that they kept this up is because they had a direct connection to Bovell. The, the way that the Mesorah worked, and this is discussed at length by Rabbi Avram ibn Dawud in Sefer Kabbalah, where, which literally means the book of tradition, how things were received generation to generation, is that it went from, from, um, from Bavel to Sfarad, from Sfarad to South Italy, from South Italy to Provence, and from Provence to France and Germany. 
So the last of the line to receive it were the Rishonim of Ashkenaz, and with all the broken telephone. And there are myriad examples of how they misunderstood the text that arrived to them. The, the post-Talmudic tradition isn't Mesorah. Mesorah ended with Ravina Rashi. The post-Talmudic tradition is a received uh, method of, of Talmudic study. So it is, it is highly um, informative that most of the books, most of the works of methodology, excuse me, in Talmudic study were written by Sefaradim. Darkeya Talmud, Klaleya Talmud, you have Halechot Olam, I think it's Darkei Shmuel. All of these were written essentially by Sefaradim. So the people who were writing books on method of Talmudic study were Sephardim because they believed there was a method to it. But amongst Ashkenazim, where's the method? Everyone does whatever they want. Pretty much. There's the Briske Derech, there's the, the Toysvist Derech, there's the Derech of, 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 of the way that they learned Gemara in this yeshiva and that yeshiva, this type of pilpul, that type of pilpul. It's a mess. And, and it's an incoherent mess. If we put our honest and we pull the trigger as you must, if you want to be intellectually honest, it's a mess. Even when it comes to practical halacha, when they say, we follow Shulchan Aruch, or, or let's be more precise, they'll say, Safar didn't follow the, the Maran, and, and Ashkenazim follow, follow Roma. Except I can start listing examples of where they, you don't. People don't. So do you follow? Oh, oh, yeah, okay, you're right, you're right. We don't really, we generally follow them. Ah, uh, no, you don't. This one follows Ben Shchai, that one follows Mishnah Barura, the other one follows Shulchan Harav, this one follows the, the Gra. And you'll also have these other people following Aruch HaShulchan, whatever other random halachic sefer that comes out since. So why lie? Why lie? Why pretend? It's, it, it's a charade. Charade, I should say. It's what it is. <laughs> You, you, you literally have to erase the meaning of the pasuk. You have to erase the institution of the Sanhedrin for this Judaism. And that should tell you that it's wrong. Now, a friend of mine once put it to me this way. He said, Rachmi, uh, <laughs> have you ever thought that perhaps people don't want to know the truth? And the person they probably don't. But this is the truth. And it's almost uh, indisputably the case. Because even if you can talk, you can nitpick about this historiography of it, um, um, you can nitpick about um, whether the Talmud, for example, was uh, the color of Rashi really are a Sanhedrin or not. And you know, you'll have some people that say that the only binding, last binding Sanhedrin is really the, the Mishnah, and they'll basically just follow that or whatever. The fact of the matter is, whatever position you take on that particular debate, you're still accepting that there's a national institution and only that institution can make authoritative law. No one else can. That's the authoritative law that we have to follow, that we're bound by the Torah, bound by the covenant at Sinai to follow. I mean, it's indisputable. Otherwise, what's the purpose of the Sanhedrin? The truth is, there is no purpose. I think I started to mention something called the Babacher and I got sidetracked, but he wrote in a letter he said, uh, he said, the people who say that we need the Sanhedrin to deal with all the sphakas, all of the doubts that we have about whatever laws, he says, he says well, we've managed to deal with sphakas for many generations without having a Sanhedrin. But that's exactly the problem. How exactly did you do that? With, with whose authority? 
So they'll come and they'll make the laws and they'll change the laws and they'll do whatever they want and there's no one there to stop them because who knows? But it is, it is the situation as it stands. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the use of the... It's, it's worse than that because now Judaism is no longer seen as a nation primarily with the law system. It's now morphed into what we call a religion um, which is really a Christian term, which only truly accurately describes Christianity, um, um, because rather we are better described, described as a nation with a law system. Otherwise, why do we have a law of torts or a law of contracts? What sort of religion needs a law of contracts or torts or a criminal law? This is a law system that ran a country. But look at the way Orthodox Salah looks nowadays. Imagine a, a, a real court run on Orthodox Salah, and you go there, they make a ruling, and you say, No, no, Your Honor. You can't pask in that way because I don't pask in that way or, or I don't hold like that shit or I'm Makel or I'm Machmer. It's a joke. How is that a legal system? And the answer is it isn't. And the reason why it's not a legal system is because of a huge problem which Rav Yehuda Halevi in his Kuzari called in Judeo-Arabic he called it Ijtihad. And Ijtihad has the same shurish, has the same root as the word Jihad which means to struggle. Ijtihad is used in both Islamic jurisprudence, as a term in Islamic jurisprudence, as a term that's used by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. And his point is, is that it refers to a sort of logic that people use in law, in interpretation, in changing law. But it comes from a place of struggle, or as we would call it in, in, in modern day uh, language, uh, religious fervor. So out of religious fervor, law becomes something different. But he says that Jews don't have this concept of ijtihad. The law is what it says. We follow what it says. So I'll give you a, a classic example. This is one of my favorites. Um, there's a mitzvah on, on, that, on uh, Chag, on the Shalosh Regalim, of Vesamachta Bechagecha. That you have to, and this is defined by the rabbis, how are you joyous on, on the festivals? You eat meat and you drink wine. First, if you're first page of Masech Tachakiga. Right. If you're, if, you're, if you're a man, you eat meat and you drink wine. Um, um, uh, a husband is obliged to buy his wife uh, uh, clothing or jewelry. And uh, for the children, you give uh, nuts or sweets and things like that. But the, let's just focus on men. Um, where they're, they're, um, the, the legal interpretation of the constitutional requirement, so the Torah is the constitution, the Torah the legal um, interpretation, the law, the Torah Shavachdav, is that you fulfill that with meat and wine. So, comes along uh, people with Ijtihad, and nowhere is this more uh, blatant that their, that their Judaism is based on pure religious fervor, overriding the law than in the case of Hasidim that on Yom Tov what are they going to do when it's Chag they'll stay back at the shul and they'll dance and they'll sing right and they will feel or believe that they are fulfilling the exhortation to be joyous on festival because I'm being joyous right but that logic comes out of their religious fervor. It's almost dimayon, it's imaginary. Because you're told how to do this in Achdech you, you, you eat meat, you drink wine, and you bring joy to your family. 
instead of bringing joy to your family, going home and making kiddush for them on time, you know, and, and making them happy, you stay back at your dancing thinking that you're doing something good. When you're doing the exact opposite, because you also have to be breaking the halakha of not dancing on Shabbat and Yom Tov. That's where it comes from, this ijtihad. It gets even worse. There was, before you were mentioning uh, specific examples of law and, and trying to generalize from them, um, and this is a particular uh, issue. And um, there's one particular paper that I don't, nowadays I'm more often than not writing in Hebrew, but there's a particular English paper I'm working on where I discuss what I call a phenomenon called the Indianization of halakha, where a particular clear halakhic principle then becomes an inyan, right? So it becomes a concept, right? And especially, you know, this is across the board, whether it's the pseudo-intellectual or, or overly intellectualist uh, modern orthodox, or it's the, um, the uh, you know, sort of emotions-based, feelings-based chassidim, um, you find this Indianization is, is, a, is, is across the board, where a law becomes a concept. It no longer is clearly defined. It's abstract, ephemeral. So um, I have some interesting examples of this. So um, I once said to uh, someone, uh, well, I've had the debate often with rabbis about being a rabbi and taking money for being a rabbi and for doing Torah, and say that I refuse to do it outright um, because it's against the law, it's against the lacha. And so one of the lines that they'll throw out is, oh, oh what about schar So they throw out this Indian called schar right? Schar being um, uh, uh, compensation for inactivity. Basically, um, it means that because I can't work, because I'm being a rabbi, therefore I have a right to compensation. Sort of, that's as they, as they, it's Indian. What about Tzachar But if you actually look at the law in Shulchan Aruch, it's very specifically worded. And it says, Right? Um, he, that he, he, he puts aside his work. Because, for example, let's say you're working eight hours a day as a businessman. And now the demands on you to teach Torah are so great that, okay, now you can only work six hours. You're entitled to compensation for that two hours less of work. It does not, an, the Sechar Vatol is not an Indian that allows you suddenly, against all of the prohibitions, the clearly stated prohibitions of making money out of Torah, it allows you to be, because it, the time that you take up doing it means that you don't have time to work. No, it doesn't mean that. Because if that's the case, why have the laws in the first place about not taking money for Torah? But you've turned it into a concept. Look at what the law actually says. This is what the words actually say. So when, whenever, you know, when they say, another term for Indianization is when they say this Episa Indian. Episa Indian. There's, there's the Indian. No, there's not. There's a law. And if there is a law, and if there's no law, then you're not bound, bound by it. If they say an Indian and it has nothing got to do with halakha, then you're clearly not bound to do it and you don't have to do it at all. But if there is a halakha and they call it an Indian, you know that something's going to go wrong here. Because, you can, well, you know, you can think of examples for yourself. I'll give you an example. Another example of this Indianization. So the, we talked about the prohibition of listening to, to music. Um, ever since the Chakra of the Bitter Mikdash. Let's just say you assume that it's, it applies to even a tape recorded music, whatever. 
So there are poskim that came up with this idea of saying, oh, but nowadays there's so much depression, and because there's depression, you should, it helps with depression to listen to music. So there's episode inion of depression, and there's episode inion of this isur. So if we use the episode inion of depression, we now no longer have to keep the episode inion of, of, of the law of not listening to music. Okay, let's just assume, let's accept that there is a valid legal argumentation to be made that, you know, music helps with depression or whatever. Okay, so if, if I were a rabbi in that position, I'd say, come to me with a, with a, uh, with a, um, uh, come to me with a, a, a letter from a psycho- psychologist that has uh, diagnosed you with depression, and then we'll talk about it. You know, we'll work out, is there a, a, a true halachic exception? Uh, and maybe uh, in some cases of depression, you don't need music, you just need medication, or I don't know, some other form of, of therapy. But the, the point is, is that you can't just say, oh, well, because Epis, there could be someone will get depressed, let's permit music now. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It also goes the other way around. It also goes the other way around. So um, just because something is permitted in one place now it becomes permitted elsewhere because something is prohibited in one place it becomes prohibited elsewhere. I'll give you an example. Um, the reasons why uh, a lot of Ashkenazi rabbis gave for banning riding bicycles on Shabbat is because Shema Yitaken Kli. There's episodian of Shema Yitaken Kli. Where? By Klei Zemer. By playing musical instruments. The very Gezerah that ironically the Tosavists undermine, they'll say, because you might come to fix your bicycle. Come along with Benish Chai and many others, Kama Hayim, and, uh, you know, Chambet Zion Shaul, others, and they say, we don't have the power to make Gezerot. We cannot make new decrees. There's n- it doesn't apply to this case. It clearly doesn't. There's no episode in There's a law. Either the category of the law applies to it or it doesn't. Because every law is truly a category, right? You don't have law, no law system can speak about every single possible instance. Or else, you know, a law that would take up like one book now takes up 50 books. So rather, there's a sort of in-out. If you're in this category, this law applies. If you're out, it doesn't apply. So um, there's the, the Indianization is there as well. Um, what just I'll finish with you know one more example of the type of halachic errors and I'm one of the, so all of my papers I'm working on are actually going to be chapters in this book about halachic interpretative uh, or interpretive uh, methodology um, how halacha should be interpreted um, how it is interpreted in the, in the uh, Sephardi Maimonidean tradition and 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 specifically using case examples showing how. Um, it's wrong to do it otherwise. Um, and one interesting thing about this is, is we have um, a rule, basically, for example, that um, by default everything is permitted unless you prove it's prohibited. This is based on the Mishnah in in Masechet Yedayim, Perek Gimel Halacha Dalet. Sorry, Perek Dalet Halacha Gimel. And yes, historically, Mishnayot were called Halachot. Each Mishnah is called the Halacha. Anyway, just like in the, the Yerushalmi. Anyway, it says over there, more or less, this is the source of the rule, someone who wants to posit that something is prohibited or restricted, you need to prove your case. Unless, unless you know, you're, you're actually trying to prove an exception to a prohibition, then it's upon you to prove it. But otherwise, you essentially have to prove this. And the Tefert Yisrael makes a remark there, even in Torah laws, even in Torah laws, because 
We don't find that the Torah comes and tells us what's permitted. The Torah comes and tells us what's prohibited. So by default, everything else is permitted. The Torah comes and tells you, don't do this. It doesn't tell you, you're permitted to do that. So we have a positivist system where everything is permitted unless there's a specific law on it. Um, also, we have, and these, a similar rule we have in, in Talmud, and it's said also in, in, in you know, in Kashrut especially, isura la Do we assume that, uh, do we have a legal assumption that something is asur? No, we don't have that legal uh, assumption, a chazaka. So for example, you'll find people say, you need a hechsher on product XYZ, even if it's vegetarian uh, or vegan, even if there's, there's really no halachic concerns. Um, you need to have a hechsher because what if the guy bought in his non-kosher ham sandwich and it fell into the, the thing? Or, oh, yeah, it's a vegan restaurant, but maybe he bought in his, his, his tray lunch to cook on the, the, the vessels. But halakha doesn't require you to worry about those possible circumstances. And yet they assume that you do. Because mm. it has to be this sort of perfect system, right? If that's the case, why do we have the, the laws of bitul? Why do we have the laws of Messiah that you can trust the goy when you're asking questions and all these other things? Why do we have the laws of Tarovet? They've created a system which is incoherent in itself. I, I might fall into the Indian trap here, but the, the, what's a striking example of this for me is uh, when in discussing the laws of Chametz and Pesach, which we're famously strict about, we talk about um, in, in the Who's Gemara. Uh, okay, fine. But we follow fine. the law. There's no I'll strict that, There's I'll, leave the law. That, I'll leave that to one side. I mean, even within the Talmud, within the strict Talmudic framework, we're more, it, we, we seem to be more careful with Chametz than we are That's with true. a lot and of other Talmudic things. law yeah. is more concerned That's about I mean. it than it is with Kashrut. I'm not even getting into like later. No, nonetheless, you only have to worry about what the law tells you to worry about. Right, but, but within the legal discussions in the Talmud, um, they have the famous examples of like mice carrying pieces of bread back and forth, and then weasels attacking the mice and killing the mice and carrying the mice out, and the mouse has in its 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 uh, mouth a piece of bread, but it's a mouse of a different color. And and, and one of the one of the, the lines they use in these discussions is end of our stuff. There's no end to the matter. Right, so there's no. So at some point you have to stop worrying. At some point you have to stop worrying. Stop worrying and, and live your Talmud life. And the Talmud seems to legislate quite clearly about what that point is, where you stop worrying. And yet, and yet they worry well beyond that. I'll give you an example. Um, it's clear that your your bitul hmm. um, does actually nullify all your chametz, right? If you truly intend to, that it be not you meaning your the declaration punishment. that you make at the start, yeah, just yeah, before yeah, the start yeah. of Pesach. Yeah, yeah. Everything you are my vatel. You are my vatel. It's no longer yours. It's no longer okay. Hamet. We're not worried about it. What's I hereby renounce all so my So why do we have to search? Crumbs, why do we have right? to search? Just in case there's something you forgot. Shema big enough. Yes. Shema yimsan gluskayaf there. Because you'll find a size that's about about over the size of kazayit. You might forget it's Pesach. You might eat it. So that means that all I have to worry about anything that's the size of kazayit. So why do people what, worried about crumbs? But then, well, why, should I, why should I care about crumbs? You're right, you shouldn't. You're not supposed to. The law tells you not, and yet they still do. Hmm. It's insane. <laughs> it, it's literally, it's insanity. And it's the ijtihad thing that I'm talking about. It's a religious fervor as well. well it's, it it's, inter mix. it's interesting you talk, you, you, you just use the word insanity, because I have a, I have a friend who uh, is... Let, a, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me actually... Um, Sorry to interrupt, but let me, just, let me just highlight the insanity. Sure. They, they make this joke of a sale of chametz, of chametz gabor. People are, 
I don't understand any of that. Say it again. They yeah. make the joke of a sale of, of chametz. The sale of chametz, as it is done nowadays, is a joke. It doesn't actually constitute a real. It doesn't constitute sale. a real sale. These people who ha- who have it still own it. They're over on 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 chametz like no, like it's unimaginable. My te- my teacher has this has this view that whenever you see Ashkenazim tend to be extremely strict on something, it's usually because they're being extremely lenient on something else in the same area of law. There's a wow. level of compensation. The extreme Whoa. leniency when it comes to the sale of chametz translates to extreme stringency in every other part of, of Pesach because it is extremely lenient. There are certain things you don't have to be a Tamil Chachamim. You don't have to know a lot of Torah to know that the average Jew finds the sale of chametz to be a joke. And the, the average Jew, not knowing an Elacha, knows that the magic string, so-called Eruv, is a joke too. Oh, here we go. We know intuitively that these are both a joke without having to open the books. And you should trust that. That's Yonah Shammah speaking. Wait, what? Do you not think intuitively that a string is suddenly um, uh, demarcates the difference between a public uh, 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 domain and a private domain? Would you, would you surround your house with a string? Well, I mean, we kind of already do with like the low fences that aren't keeping any barbarian hordes off our lawns, but still indicate to the public that our lawns are private property and the pavement is not. Uh, you're being overly literalistic. In, 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 I mean, if, the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, is that in the sense where it's surrounding a, a public thoroughfare, it goes over a public road. Now we're, we're going to say, no, it's no longer a public road. Hmm. It's a public road. Now, this is a simplification because hmm. obviously the way that they arrived at this conclusion, the same way that they arrived at the conclusion about the, the, the current way that they sell Pesach, Hametz and Pesach, is, is, is complex. Hmm. It's, a, it's a slow evolution of different concepts, built on different concepts, built on different concepts. But by necessity, I'm simplifying to the ridiculousness of the final product. But every step of the way, we could analyze each legal step they took to get there. Nonetheless, the end product is ridiculous. Oh, come on. Like, I mean, you had, you had to be, I mean, I feel like you, this is a bit outside, outside, um, what do you call it? There's a baseball term for this. Um, uh, I can't remember, outside your envelope, outside your, outside Obama uses it when he describes what a good, like why his dancing is good. Because I stay in my, not his lane. I don't know, he describes the stand-up comedian. He's like, I, I understand I'm a 50-year-old guy. I stay in my, maybe it'll come to me. It's a baseball term, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, it's like, I, I, I understand your legalistic point all the way through. But the moment you want to start saying, oh, I think I understand, or at least I, you know, I'm grasping the edges of the talith, as it were. But, but the moment that you want to say that, oh, but, you know, one can intuit that this is ridiculous. It's like you really want to open that lens and, and have a go at the faith with that because there's thousands of things you can throw that at all across. And oh, a lot no, of those no, are Talmudic and a lot not, of those Rambam would back up. No, 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 of course. But, but um, it's not like that's proof what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that a lot of people, to a lot of people, this just makes sense. Okay, fine. But it to a lot does. of people, a lot of halachic instruments that are that I think you would uh, you would concede are legitimate halachic instruments would be would seem similarly ridiculous. Such as, I don't know enough about like what I, I don't know enough about which 
halakhic instruments have the right lineage for you to give them your stamp of approval, but I'm imagining that there are many that well, would, that would you strike could, you the You could bring an example from Shulchan Aruch or from, or from you could bring an example from Shulchan Aruch or Mishneh Torah, but, but more or less, mm-hmm. as a Jew who's read the Bible, which is, you know, our, 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 the, should be the basis of our Weltanschauung, our uh, world, you know, um, not some random book of Hashkafa, but Tanakh should be our basis of everything. Um, I find more often than not that halacha makes perfect intuitive sense. Mm. If you understand it, you take the time to understand it. But you, you know what is clearly ridiculous versus what makes sort of sort of makes sense. So even if even if it's been played around with a bit, you can still sort of see that something makes sense. But you know when things are really far, they're really out there, they're really gone too far. Mm-hmm. On on this topic, the, the um the Tanakh Welt and Shang producing a sense of um, what a sense of the of the Tom, of the law as it comes out of the Talmud being reasonable. I have a lot of I have a lot of trouble personally um, when the um, when like the laws of like a particular sacrificial procedure are given in the in the in the Torah and then the the Talmudists derive extraordinary I say the Talmudists, the sages of the Talmud um, pull out extraordinary details of law from like where the extra vav is or this statement is repeated you, you, or... you, you've, you've made a, a fundamental error okay already okay you you are assuming that they pull the law out of okay who said that they pull the law out of the text instead of isegesizing it backwards into the text well it wouldn't be called exegesizing it backwards filing it under the text in other words they're the legislators they're the parliament right mm. they can make whatever the, the hell laws they want Hmm. Right? Within certain constitutional limits. They make the law and then they find the place to file it in the Torah. Hmm. Now, they can choose to just make that an asmachta or they can choose to say, no, this is part of the mitzvah, this is the mitzvah. And then what that changes is the stringency of its application? Well, it just depends on how much legal force they'd like to give it. I mean, they don't have to file it under the text at all. They can make it a gazera, takana, or a minhag. And then that no would have. Basis. Right, but then it would have less. It would still be binding, but it would have less legal force in certain circumstances. Not necessarily. They're all legal, they'll have legal force. So you, what's have, the you have to keep it. What, what, what's, the, what's the. Oh, there's differences in, in terms of punishment, there's difference in terms of, the, you know, um, uh, requirements and, um, for, uh, you know, testimony. And when you say punishment. filing it, do you mean pegging it to an elaborate mnemonic system? No, 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 not necessarily. Look, I'll give you an example. Hmm. Right? I'll give you an example. So, if I wanted to, um, so let's say the Sanhedrin decided that it wants to uh, prohibit abortion for B'nai Noach, because there's two separate mitzvahs, there's one for, for Jews, one for, for, for non-Jews. And it does prohibit it for B'nai Noach. So it decides to file that prohibition under the Pasuk in uh, Parashat Noach. Or it's Parashat Bereshit, actually. Um, there it says there, Meke, um, uh, what is it? Shofech dam adam, but adam damav yishafech. Right? Shofech dam adam, someone who, who spills the blood of a, of, of a man, of a human. Be, uh, um, 
שפך דם באדם, באדם דמיו יישפך. In place of that man, his blood should be poured. So in other words, you kill someone, you should be poured. This is in the, the, the fallout of, of Cain killing Abel? That's correct. Okay. Now, the Talmud decides we want to ban abortion on... Um, on uh, on Bnei Noach, on, on Gary Toshov, on a non-Jew who lives under our legal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And so it says, Sofech dam adam be'adam, a human in another human, thus a fetus. It's not that it's learning it out of the Pasuk, because that's clearly not what the Pasuk is trying to say. It is filing it under that Pasuk. They are the legislators, they do what they want. What's the parallel if there it's is the one? Same way. It's the same way in Australia or in the United yeah. States, a, law, a, law, a, a, a congressman wants to make a law, and then he determines, does it fit on the, con- on the Constitution? Now, you have very strict constitutionalists that will start looking at the Constitution and see, can I make this law? I'm not talking about those but exceptions. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be about they whether make they can a law it and the Constitution. They... It would be about whether you can amend it to an existing... No, they want to make a law, and then mm-hmm. they want to see, is this law constitutional? Is, mm-hmm. it is it allowed under the Constitution? You don't go the other way around. Look at the Constitution and then work out the law. Okay, but they make a law. Is it, allow- is it allowed under the Constitution is a bit different from is there a constitutional basis for it? Can I, like... It, or what you but said before- why do you assume that when they state the law that way that they're looking for a constitutional basis? They're saying, they're saying that, you know, the authority comes from Moses. The authority mm-hmm. comes from the Torah that he gave us. Look... You have to remember the very famous uh, Agadah um, about um, Moshe Rabbeinu going up to heaven and seeing uh, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva in his academy lecturing about, this is the law that we got from Moses at Sinai. Moses no, like, exactly. No, 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 no. You're, you're misstating it. Okay. You, you, you've lost the entire strength okay, of it. Okay, you tell it. it. You tell he it. See, he hears him being Doresh all the hot out of the out of the crown. The crowns that, on, the, on the letters. On the letters, yeah. right? He's, he's Doresh. Tilei tilim shalalachot. Mountains upon mountains of, of laws. And he doesn't know what's going on. And he's so upset about this. So he goes to God and God says, go back. Go, go listen again. So he goes back. And then he sees, he hears. Uh, one, of the, one of them asks, the students ask, Rabbi Kiva, how do we know this? Rabbi Kiva answers, And now Moshe Rabbeinu, as the story goes, he was happy with that. Mm. He's at rest. What do you mean he was happy that he's at rest? He is Moshe. He didn't know any of this. It's not like he now makes sense to him. How, how, how do you reconcile that? Well, it's obvious. So, Rabbi, Moshe Rabbeinu clearly respects the jurisdiction of Rabbi Akiva. He receives the law from Akiva and then, then returns to his own timeline and passes it down to Akiva. No, 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 You have no. a secure timeline. No, you, you, you... Sure, you, Richard Feynman even posits that such things are possible. <laughs> this is a, a, an Agadah brought in an illegal text to teach you a legal point. Yeah, it's point. a closed time loop. It's actually one of the least <laughs> paradoxical models of time travel. Really? The but, least paradoxical. But, but it's it, it, the point that it's trying to make is, yeah. is that insofar as it came on the authority of the system that he founded, it doesn't really matter that the contents changed. It is the authority of the system. The, the idea. System. So what, what Moshe was actually worried about isn't, I don't get it. It was actually worried about, oh my God, they've, they've taken my law and they've run no, crazy what is places. This? What is this? It's right. not Torah. I don't know what it is. No, it's just, it, this came from you. This is the Torah. Just further developed. We weren't given a... We're not like... Oh, it's not like I've been superseded by a new system. Imagine Christianity, Christianity, system Christianity and Islam. Imagine... Lahavdil. If you... If, if you if, yeah, imagine if any of them said about their, their, their founding fathers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they said, 
um, oh well, he didn't understand that he didn't understand something that was said further down the track, right? It's, it's unheard of. But we Jews, we do say it because we understand that we are supposed to further develop and evolve and move the law system forward and not live in a in a in a, in a time capsule a long time ago. Mm. The point of the Torah is to move us in a direction until we reach the pinnacle of civilization. It restricts certain things. The Torah when it was given restricted certain things in the context of the Middle East. And it was more permissive about things which were previously not permitted in the context of the Middle East. And the rabbis continued that process. They continued to restrict those things until, I mean, the Torah begins to restrict, restrict slavery. And then the rabbis take it further and further and further until it was such a, a level. That they said, you know, someone buys a slave, buys a master for himself. Mm-hmm. They were continued the process. Mm-hmm. They developed it further. When the time of the Torah was given, you couldn't just abolish slavery. Mm. <laughs> there the, the wouldn't be an economy. Let, let me, let me there wouldn't be an economy without it. They let, weren't, they weren't, um, they weren't uh, efficient enough. Right. But they did start restricting it. And they moved humanity towards the idea that slavery is a bad thing and should be restricted. That's the beginning of the message. Right. That slavery is bad. Also, the, um, the, uh, the gradual what civilizing influence of, of um, removing... Uh, you know, the more macabre punishments and replacing them with, with penalties of uh, financial penalties. Oh, yeah. So the Torah actually very quickly and very immediately eliminates all punishment, all, all, all capital punishment for financial crimes. That was a massive leap forward in civilization by anyone's judgment. It what, creates... Where does it say that? Hang on. Is no. that like a specific thing or like by omission? Have you, is there, is there, there is a, a single... It's by omission, you mean? Like there's no, there's no crime, there's no financial there, crime There were listed. laws in the Middle East at the time that clearly you were put to death. For, right. There's a code of Hammurabi. The, the, right, right, yeah. There's, there's also there's an interesting parallel over in um, Draco in, in, in ancient Greece. They, he, he, you know, from, from which we get the adjective draconian for laws that are yeah. excessively harsh. And they asked him, why should the thief get the same punishment as the murderer? Why they, why they both be executed? That's unfair. And Draco says, well, you know, the thief deserves execution. And I haven't come up with the harsher punishment for the murderer. <laughs> Yes, well, exactly. Um, the, the Torah also stands us on the on, on the path of you know further restricting um, that which needs to be restricted and, and further permitting that which needed to be permitted. So, so in, in some sense, are we missing like fifteen hundred years of halachic development that should have been parallel well, with civilization? Well, <laughs> the, the argument that I run into a lot when I talk about this frozen law system is that people say, "Oh, but the law system has to move forward; it has to continue; it has to develop." Mm. Except the people making this argument in the Orthodox world, more often than not, their their law systems are regressive and backwards thinking and frozen. Do you want to give me an example? Whereas, or are you going to get whereas, a lot of trouble whereas, giving me an example? Whereas Sephardim, on the other hand, I mean, yes, it's a frozen law system, but we're far more progressive as a result. In fact, give me an example. What well, do you mean by well, progressive? Well, well, let's let's make let's make a let's make a, a observation, right? Sure. The observation, the broad observation is that in some ways, although they're more permissive than the Talmud in certain specific examples, including multiple ones that I've discussed, more often than not, they're actually much more stricter. Much more stricter. And they increase prohibitions upon prohibitions upon prohibitions. For example, there's no such thing as the, the three weeks in Talmud. Okay, all right. Okay, buddy. In Talmud. There okay, isn't. that's fine. And they've added. Right? Okay. But more often than not, they add more. And they restrict. Yeah, 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 so, for yeah. example, uh, I also feel, feel on like basic people are a lot more comfortable adding than, than, than 
like becoming being more moving into more strictness than more lenience they feel more comfortable because they want to feel like they're not they're super they're, righteous they're not yes it's the, the Ishtihad, Ishtihad you were talking but about, they're yeah. also they also don't want to seem like they're undermining previous generations right so suddenly they care about but, but also they, they feel like it's but, a fulfillment but, but they of they are, but they are changing the law Okay. But they are. And so, so also the Agletora, which Rab, is the opening. Rabbeinu Nisim Gaon, Rabbeinu Nisim Gaon wrote a wrote a vidui that's recited by uh, some Ashkenazim on, on Yom on Yom, to, on Yom Kippur and yeah. Sephardim generally as well say. It. And one of the confessions is Etha Sher Hitarta Asarati Etha Sher Asarta Hitarti. I permitted that which was forbidden, and yes, I forbade that, that which you was forbade, and I and I forbade that which you've permitted. And they and basically, it's just as wrong to do that. You're still you changing the great line. I think and you're forcing other people as well to do it. You have this great line. I think it's somewhere in the Talmud where like. Kolomosif Gorea. Whoever adds subtracts. What? Kolomosif Gorea. Yeah, but, all, but there's, this, there's also this really powerful bit where they, um, they have God himself saying, Oh, did I not give you enough commandments? Asra Torah. Is it not enough for you what Torah has forbidden? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. So they talk did about... Did I not do a good enough job of legalizing? Ironically, ironically the Sephardim who did not see the need to evolve the law and permit that which was prohibited or permit that which was permitted, they permitted electricity on Yom Tov. They... Um, uh, in Istanbul, for example, um, they used to have dances between the eligible bachelors and uh, bachelorettes to make shidduchin. And that dance happened in the synagogue under the uh, watchful eyes of the Chachamim. Um, they, they permitted their own daughters, Chachamim permitted their own daughters to wear sleeves which were which would be called by the Ashkenazi Orthodox world uh, ansanua, above, above the elbows. Did they and, permit their daughters to go about in the marketplace with their heads uncovered? There are two Sephardi Chachamim who are of the view that nowadays it is permitted for women in societies where they don't cover their hair to go uncover their hair. It's also implied as well um, in the view of the Benish Chayel, though he wasn't happy about it, that there is a legal argument to be made that is permitted. But Chacham Yosef Mesas is, is the most famous on that particular point. But there's also Chacham Moshe Malka and others as well who make this point. What, yes. that, that now you now what unmarried women going about with their heads uncovered is because, now permitted? Because, because, because the Talmudic law as they see it was always societally based which means that by their argument if you go to Saudi Arabia you, you, you have to cover up as a man and your wife would have to cover up as well mm. as a woman interesting according to the I mean you go to Mansharim you better dress do, like do, do, why is, does the original Talmudic text make it clear Implied that it's societal society, yeah that yeah alright I mean I'm, I'm going to take your word for it that there's a difference because I'm not I'm not across there's a, there's, it's a complex so yeah there's actually multiple is from Kedushin like no, the, there's, the mul beginning? there's multiple parts in the Talmud which discuss okay. the, the matter. There's also an element of uh, of con of contract uh, there as well um, the, between the man and his wife, whether she has sort of impliedly consented to dress in the standard of a certain standard when she marries her husband. Um, oh, that's interesting. But that's but I mean, it's in all contractual matters. He's entitled to um, to you know to forgive any obligations towards him so there's that as well but it's it's a complicated subject let me let me ask you about um let me ask you about these these dances in baghdad is there not like an issue there right there no, that wasn't baghdad that was uh, istanbul in, in istanbul let me ask you about this isn't there an issue of um of uh, nida isn't that there right there? that's a big big issue uh, with the dance yeah with the dance oh i see because the there wait 
I mean, were they touching in the dances or were they just frittering around each other? They were touching. But what makes you think that it was uh, Kirva? What's Kirva? Kirva is, is the... Uh, intimate touch? Yes, essentially that's what you're referring to, is touching in an intimate way which is prohibited with the RIO, right? Dancing was a societally accepted thing. It's a social norm. Kirva, you don't think dancing Kirva is intimate? It can be. Doesn't mean it is. I think, it, I think even the most regal and, and, and refined of waltzes is intimate. Can be. Doesn't mean it if is. If it's done well. Okay, sure. Can be. Doesn't what, mean it so is. What, so the were there to make sure that, that they didn't dance too effectively? Let me put it to you this way, right? Sure. The orthodox world, which just goes, sometimes goes over the top and says all touches prohibited. It's clear, for example, that shaking hands is not intimate, except in maybe some certain very exceptional circumstances, right? Generally, it's professional and considered quite detached and acceptable in the exactly. business world. And now, kissing a woman on the cheek, peck on the cheek. Well, it depends, doesn't it? Italy, okay. you know, mwah, mwah. France, it's the norm. Everyone right. does it to everyone. South Brazil. Exactly. North Brazil. <laughs> it could be in, 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 in Saudi Arabia, it would be a very different story. Right. Presumably. Right. In, in, uh, in Korean TV dramas, I'm given to understand that um, occasionally when they are hugging, like one character will pat the other on the back and the, the camera will zoom in on it and make a big deal of it because apparently in that culture, it, it, that's a display of particular intimacy. Yeah, yeah. I hug, you know, I hug friends all the time. Doesn't mean I'm... You know, sometimes a different type, there's, a, there's a clearly a difference between a, a hug which is, you know, romantic or sexual and a hug that isn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the ridiculousness of the Orthodox world is when it prohibits a, a, a Jewish man from hugging his sister because hugging is kirvala. Well, no, it's not. It depends on the context. Um, it is, is but the Talmud context. itself is, is famously what well, it, it equivocal depends. on this. No, no. What is no. it? goes and Ulla goes and and is very close with his is sisters, it? but he but it says like call what is it? I call Hashem Shemayim Mutar or something. No, so no, 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 no. The, 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 the Talmud is quite unequivocal that mm. it is subjective. Right. And I have a proof of this. No, it's all about here It's all about your personal thought. You know, yeah. obviously. I mean, it gives certain examples. It says. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Right. right? And the reason why it says shouldn't rather than mustn't is because it usually will cause you a problem. Right, right. But uh, listen, there's a famous sugya. Yeah, yeah. I believe it's Rakhista. He, he would take the bride on his shoulders. On his shoulders. Why? Because she's like a board to me. Master, is this permitted to us also? If she's like a beam of wood to you, it's permitted now, also now, to you. Now, here's the thing. Yeah. Some people have tried to argue... Um, that, um, well, that's not halakha, that's not halakha, but so too, the ritva at the end of the uh, kiddushin basically says that that is the halakha. If you are honest with yourself and you know that something does not cause you here hur, and he says you have to be honest with yourself and you can't lie to yourself, and you know it doesn't cause it, then it's not a problem for you. Mm. But, you know, there's a flip side that's relevant as well. A, a girl might be dressed in, you know, uh, a green um, Victorian-era dress, which huh. covers her, whatever. Oh, I, that must be Sunuah. But let's say, for whatever reason, the color green turns you on. You can't look at that, hmm. even if she's fully covered, if, if she is Erva, which she probably isn't, by the way. 
unless she's Arabic married. Arabic means like, one like of, the of, the, of the category of forbidden relations. Yeah, of the category of, of forbidden relations. Because of course, a man is, what is it? A man is permitted uh, or even encouraged to gaze at a woman for the purpose of determining if yes. he would like to take Within her as a wife. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, and of course, I mean, if she's not in Nidar, for example, and she's uh, she's a Jewish girl who's not in Nidar, is not unmarried, then then there's no Isor of Kirva at all. Um, there's an Isor to have relations with her without marriage, but there's no Isor of Kirva because she's not one of the Arayot. Mm. Um, so uh, if they're not and the does Arayot, the Kirva apply regardless of, of, of Nidar status? No, because only when she's a Nidda, she becomes one of the Arayot. So, but, but when, hang on. So the Arayot are defined as, the Arayot are defined as someone, if you had relations with them, you'd be Hayav, either Karet or Mita. Right, right, and I get that. But, but hang on, so you're saying that it's an, it's an opt-out system where it's, it's if, if I'm understanding this correctly, it's um, if... If she's if if the woman is not an Ida, there's no issue at all. If she is an Ida, it's only an issue if there's Kirva. Is that correct? No. If she's a Nida, Kirva you clearly can't sleep with her, and there's Kirva. You have to be worried about Kirva. Meaning intimate touch. Intimate touch or right. anything that really brings you to her. Or um, if she if she is a um if she's not a Nida, well then you don't you, there's no technically nothing against Kirva. Um, Why is it technically? Well, because there are rabbinic recommendations against. Does know. Rambam bring these recommendations? I'm not saying it's law. I didn't say it's law. But does Rambam bring these recommendations? Um, not sure. Okay. Usually he doesn't. Recommendations aren't law, not generally. Sometimes. Fair. I think we're going to wrap up pretty soon. Yes. Um, there's just a lot, lot, lot more to talk about, there's of course, lot. as I'm you getting, can imagine. I'm getting the sense more and more. Um, you know, the, the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. Exactly. We've only, we've only touched on a little bit on the... Um, we, we, well, I think we've probably mostly covered what needs to be covered about pre-Talmudic rubric authority. I think you've made your case very well. Thank you. I'm very impressed. Do you, do you know there's, a, um, there's this wonderful passage in... I'm sure you do. Well, one second. I just want to... Just to, to to finish that point, I think that, sure. um, you know, there's a lot more that could be said about post-Talmudic rabbinic authority, and that's why I'm writing a book on it, a sefer on it in Hebrew. There's a lot to be said on it, on the subject. The question is, so then what is the basis for authority, if any? For mm. example, the authority of a local rabbi or a local Bethdin to make decrees on the city. It's a very interesting question, even though it's not. It's more a point of history than anything nowadays, since, you know, they don't really do that nowadays anyway. Um, um, there's also the discussion of the non-legal aspects of Judaism needs to be had. The philosophy, um, um, all these lovely uh, topics. Um, Jewish education is very key as well. Um, there's also a discussion of where we went wrong, how we went down this path. And this is the most int- interesting part of it, is that it has nothing to do with Ashkenazim. It's not the Ashkenazim who are at fault. The Maimonidean and the anti-Maimonidean controversy, which is at fault for most of the ills of Judaism nowadays, will all happened in Iberia. So ah. it has nothing to do with Ashkenazim. It's always those foxes in that vineyard, eh? Yeah, it's the foxes in the vineyard. Right in the vineyard. Right in the vineyard. All right. Well, Reb Rachmiel, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. You know, the, uh, this passage, I think I'll we'll close with this. Uh, there's this great passage of the, um, the death of Rabbi Eliezer. Remember this one, where Rabbi Elazar is lying on his deathbed and he's, and he's talking to his students and he says something like, 
my um I took I took from my master from my masters only like a dog lapping at the ocean. And my students have taken from me only what the applicator brush takes from the uh, from the tube of ointment. And uh, yeah, you know, in our own ways, I think we uh, we, we we strive to to embody the sages. And I'll say, with this conversation, I, I certainly feel like the applicator brush still has a lot left to pick up. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. But uh, yeah, look, at the end of the day, it's all l'shem shemayim. It's all a search for what we are supposed to be doing. Um, for me, this is how we follow This is the our law system. Um, I believe that this understanding of the law system has a way to uh, unify the Jewish nation and brings back to being a nation with one Torah, one law system. To quote from Marana Mechaber, not a nation with a thousand Torahs, but a one nation with one Torah under one system. And then... Hopefully we can bring back a Sanhedrin and update the law a bit, you know, um, to get rid of laws that we may or may not think are a bit outdated. Allow chicken palmers, for example. <laughs> or whatever it may be. Speedily in our days. Amen. Amen. With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny.